We work hard at being healthier. And what we really need is better quality sleep. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed intelligently senses your movements and automatically adjusts your comfort and support on both sides. This is not a bed. It's proven quality sleep. It's the biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the new Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus special financing only for a limited time. To find your local Sleep Number store, go to sleepnumber.com. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details. We work hard at being healthier. And what we really need is better quality sleep. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed intelligently senses your movements and automatically adjusts your comfort and support on both sides. This is not a bed. It's proven quality sleep. It's the biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the new Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus special financing only for a limited time. To find your local Sleep Number store, go to sleepnumber.com. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details. This was all circulating around the base that a giant had been killed, but no one was supposed to talk about it. I saw three long, bony fingers reach up underneath the door, curl up to grab it, and then disappear. When he came over to me, dude, he slithered over to me. And this giant comes out of the cave, and they're all frozen. And he starts running and firing at this giant. Well, the giant moves. He's got a spear in one hand, and he's running really fast. And spears Dan holds him up like this. Somebody yells, shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face. They basically decapitate him. Got closer, got closer, got closer. When he got about 15 yards away from me, I raised that 12 gauge and I blowed his head off. I feel something pulling at my leg. And I look over and there are two small gray entities pulling at me. And they're literally, I'm getting pulled off the bed. I reach my hand into this bush and I touch air. Couldn't breathe and I couldn't move because I know I'm seeing a monster. Welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to The Confessionals. I am your host, Tony Merkel. Thank you for being here. If you've had an encounter or a story you'd like to share on the show, go ahead and shoot me an email. My email address is theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. That's theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com, hit the connection section, and you can reach me that way as well. Either way works for me. Just get a hold of me. Now, this week, we're going to change things up a little bit. We're going to do the iTunes rating and review, but it's going to be the Art Bell five-star iTunes rating and reviews. That's right. We're going to start naming this segment after Art Bell, the great Art Bell. So this week we have... Yo, dude, what's up? Oh, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were recording. No, it's all right. Uh, come on in. Have a seat. I'm just recording the intro here. What? Actually, you know what? You want to join me on the intro? Yeah. Cool, cool. Pull the, uh, swing that microphone over to you. All right, cool, cool. Uh, give me a mic check real quick. Is it on? Yeah, it's on. It's on. Cool. Well, actually, what I'm doing right now is I'm doing the iTunes rating and reviews, and I'm actually naming the um, segment after Art Bell. So it's going to be the Art Bell five-star iTunes rating and reviews, and I'm about to do the shout-outs. You want to do the shout-out? Yeah, bring it over. 
Yeah, here. Why don't you just read off those names right now? All right, so for the Art Bell five-star iTunes shout-outs, we have Ace7763, Drunken Grizzly, George BB5, and The Real JB. Right on. So thank you very much for going to iTunes and leaving that rating and review. It helps the show out a lot to grow on iTunes when you do that, and especially when you leave the five-star rating and review. That's why I'm naming the segment five-star rating and review. Uh, so it's going to be the Art Bell five-star ratings and review on iTunes. And uh, thanks to everybody who went out there and did that for me this past week. It's awesome, and I appreciate it. So uh, we're actually, I'm actually thinking about doing a, uh, a Patreon segment where I do the shout-outs and name that too, but I'm just trying to figure out what exactly to name it and stuff. I don't want it to be corny, so... <laughs> Good so, luck with that. You know, why don't you just keep this paper over there, and I'll let you do the uh, Patreon shout-outs, too, this week. So uh, why don't you do the uh, Patreon shout-outs right now? Okay. So for the Patreon shout-outs, we have, as new members, Kara, we have Lee R, Brandy C, and then upgraded to groupies, we have Robert G, and upgraded to the squad, we have Susie J. All right, so there you go. Thanks for going to Patreon and becoming a patron and helping to support the show on a monthly basis. If you're interested in becoming a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash the confessionals. That's patreon.com forward slash the confessionals. There you'll be able to sign up for a bunch of different cool rewards that you'll get for being a monthly contributor on Patreon. So, Jack, before I actually introduce our guests and everything, you know, how you doing, man? This is my little, to everybody who's listening, this is my younger brother, Jack, young Merc. What's up? No, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for asking, man. Are you sleeping over tonight? Oh, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. We're going to be doing some housework at my house tomorrow, and I wasn't sure if you were going to come down today or not, so it's pretty cool that you're here. Um, so let me ask you a question. I've been doing some, uh, watching some YouTube videos and things like that. A lot of people have been telling me I need to look into the flat earth thing. So what what's your take on the flat earth? Um, You know, I mean, that's something I haven't done a whole lot of research on, but if I were to... Uh... You know, I don't want to make anybody upset. I'm not a flat earther, um, but I do think that, you know, as long as you're open to, uh, in you know, investigating and trying to learn a little bit about it, you know, you might be able to find something out. I, I think it's more likely there's a hollow earth, but, uh, you know, you never know. So you, you think that there could be a hollow earth, but you don't yes. think that the earth is flat. Yeah, and like I said, I haven't done, I haven't done the research to be able to give you a definite... Um, you know, I know there's a lot of experiments you can do to try and uh, prove or disprove uh, one way or the other, but at least from what I would understand, I think it's a hollow earth. You know, I think it's funny because most flat earthers say that they said the same thing you just said before they were flat earthers. They're like, oh. they didn't think that the earth was flat, they thought it was stupid, and then they looked into it to disprove somebody and they became flat earthers. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't say it was stupid. I, w- I wouldn't go that far because I think, you know, this is an area that everyone has an opinion on. And, you know, there's only so much you can really do to prove it without flying out of the Earth's atmosphere and really getting an, an idea of it. But, right. um, you know, same thing with the hollow Earth. You'd have to actually go investigate for yourself. But nobody's been to Antarctica, and I think that's where you go in. So, You think they go into Antarctica? Yes. I think that. I Why think, do you think that? Uh, well, you know, if if there if it wasn't in Antarctica, I feel like you'd be able to go there uh, much more freely and uh, capably. Um, you know, right now there's the, only a few people that are allowed down there. Uh, the world's powers uh, they they meet down there. You know, occasionally Hitler. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's proven that that's true. 
and Argentina actually actually has a lot of Germans in Argentina. I mean, you you go down to Ar- Argentina and you say, you know, <laughs> "Como estás?" and they're like, "Guten Morgen." <laughs> yeah man i'm telling you uh there definitely was something going on down there but i don't know with yeah. the with the flat earth and everything i mean i'm not a flat earther but i am looking into it right now uh because i've had so many people say you need to look into the flat earth i'm actually thinking about doing a show on flat earth bringing some flat earthers on to explain their vantage point and everything that'd and be good yeah i was i was actually watching some videos of uh flat earth on i know it was actually facebook it was just uh I think it was earlier today. I, I was listening to, or I was watching a video on Facebook that popped up. It was a flat Earth video, and it's like twenty minutes long. It was like ten top ten reasons why the flat Earth or the Earth is flat, you know. And it really didn't go into a whole lot of why the Earth is flat as much as why NASA is lying. Now that's something uh, I can get on board yeah, with. I agree with that. Yep. Because there's a lot of shady stuff that NASA does, and just to mention, not to mention, we're talking about Nazis here in the Hollow Earth. You know, you got Werner von Braun, who is the one who headed up NASA. And he was a Nazi Nazi uh, scientist. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that goes along with the whole Operation Paperclip as well. I mean, you know, you have a lot of things that kind of tie together that if you look at it a little bit, cl- a little bit more close, uh, you'd probably be able to see there's something up. There's something a little shady. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean. And in this video and stuff, it starts out with the very first thing it starts out with is, uh, remember that guy who kind of got shot up into space and it wasn't like all the way up, but he was in the outer atmosphere or something like that. And he jumps and skydives. There's like the Red, Red Bull, Bull guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they, they sh- I think it was him because they show this guy doing a skydive from outer space. And in one picture on the side of the capsule that he's jumping off of, it's it's like has like some stuff around, but it, there's this one word that's not there. And then in, in this other picture, it's there. Like it was photoshopped on there. Oh. And so they're like, you know, clearly, you know, this isn't real. Now, here's the thing with that. Like things can be photoshopped. When Definitely. were when were they photoshopped? Were they photoshopped? And who were they photoshopped by? So were they photoshopped by NASA? Or was it photoshopped? It could have been somebody who doesn't trust NASA and post put that photoshopped that word on there and then took the two pictures and said, see, they're lying because look, there's they're right there. But it could have been it could have been somebody who just once has an agenda out for NASA, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, we can always go down that road where um, it can always look photoshopped. It can always look computer animated, and it's tough because nowadays everyone has the capability on their computers. I mean, your your computer right. itself. Oh, could I could do, do that easily, and, yeah. I and I don't even have Photoshop. I just use free online programs. Yeah, exactly. The only thing with that is, though, you know, you get to the point where it's, and I don't think it's good to just blatantly trust anything. But you get to the point then where you're just there's nothing that you believe, you know, and you, you kind of. <laughs> yeah. It's good to question everything. I think that's absolutely certain. But you know. With a with a jump like that, I don't know what they'd be proving or disproving unless the the shots were very blatantly showing a curve of the Earth, uh, and that could be on purpose. You know, they could do that. Uh, you know, computer generated on purpose to try and disprove those who think otherwise. But, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing like, with the curvature of the Earth, and when you're in outer space, and like, I've seen pictures of you know the horizon of the Earth from outer space, and the, it's a flat line, and they're like, see. There's no curvature. But I'm like, there's vantage points here that you have to consider about. How close was the camera to the Earth? Now, if the camera was, you know, 35,000 miles 
on the outside of the atmosphere and you're taking a picture of the earth and it looks flat, that's one thing. But if you're just getting to the point where you're leaving the atmosphere and you're pretty close to the earth still and you take that picture, I mean, maybe you don't see the the curvature because you're so close and the earth is so big from your perspective still. You're like right. an ant on a ball. You know what I mean? Like well, it all depends. You see, we go, what, maybe thirty to 35,000 feet up when we fly on an airplane. And even at that point, it's hard to tell, um, you know, because the atmosphere at that point is still pretty thick. Um, and you're also trying to get, um, you have to get high enough in order to really start to see any sort of curvature. You know, you can always say that there's a little bit of a gradient between when you're looking over the ocean and the horizon, um, but there's still not enough for you to see on the surface the curve. And the same thing goes with flying at 35,000 feet. You still don't see the curve quite as much as what you think you would. Um, so that, that always leads me to think yeah. that, you know, they could be onto something. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, like they talk, one of the things that flat earthers talk about a lot, and I'm not knocking flat earthers because I'm looking into it for a reason because yeah. I just want truth. Like, I don't care. Like, and I, I heard a flat earther say that he gets so mad when people say, well, what does it matter anyways if the earth is flat or round? And that's kind of my perspective of things. I don't really care either way. If, the, if, if I find out today the earth is flat. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm still going to post the show. I'm still going to right. go to the store and get my groceries. Right. I'm going to go to work on Monday. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's, I agree with you. It's not going to change my life. But at the same time, now, if you take the faith aspect of things in, into play, it is pretty important because say you're, you become a flat earther and you're, um, you're an atheist that uh, doesn't believe there is a God and things like that. Well, if you throw out the heliocentric model of the earth out the window, and all of a sudden, you're living on a flat Earth that's been intentionally created for you alone. Uh, it points towards a creator, and so I could see how it, because I've heard of so many people who started becoming like faith-based people, whether it's Christian or whatever it is, because they became flat Earthers. Right. So, right. I mean, we have the science that bases everything based upon uh, spheres orbiting another sphere, um, and when you would have then a disc or even you know um, an oval sort of object. Uh, rotating around a sphere, it really wouldn't quite, uh, you know, pan out the same way. And especially, like you said, a planet created specifically, or even, you know, if you look at evolution, evolved specifically to be a a disk that, you know, rotates a sun specifically for you. I mean, I don't know, there's a lot of factors in there. So no, I get it. I mean, I and so when I look at this stuff, though, I mean, one of the things that they talk about, and you were just talking about the planes and everything just a few minutes ago, they say that they planes when when a pilot's flying a plane, they have to adjust for the curvature of the Earth. Yet they don't do that. So basically, for every I think mile you go on Earth, you need to adjust eight inches for the curvature. That's the equation that I, that they've been saying. And so when a when a pilot's flying, they can't just fly straight, or else they'll fly off the face of the Earth. They have to adjust for the curvature of the Earth, and they right. say right. that pilots don't do that. And so Here's the thing, though. I heard that from flat earthers. I want to hear a pilot say to me, I don't adjust for the curvature of the earth. There's no need to do that because of this, that, or the other. Like, I want to hear from a a perspective of a pilot, you know? And now, granted, there might be a perspective out there that's a flat earther and he's a pilot and everything. I just haven't found him yet because I, I, listen, I work a lot and I'm just listening to YouTube videos and podcasts. And so I find it when I get to it. If somebody's listening to me and they want to share it with me, go ahead and shoot me an email at theconfessionalspodcast.com. Or no, that's actually the website, theconfessionals at, no, theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. I can't remember my own nice. email. <laughs> 
But no, I mean, so it's an interesting thing. Like they do bring up interesting points. And that's the thing. Like I'm not a flat earther right now. Probably I, I, I don't see me becoming a flat earther, but I don't knock them. I don't knock them because listen, we've been lied to about a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't trust NASA. I don't trust NASA. Agree with you, and yeah. so like I get it. You know what I mean? But I just for me, it's going to take a lot. And so but I'm looking at some of their stuff. And like, like I said about the mile thing and the eight inches drop. They actually uh, do these tests where you're like on a plane and, and you can if you're if you have a telescope or binoculars, you can see like eight miles, you know, or however long it is. They do these different things where like they're 40 miles away and you can see you can see um, the skyline. I think they actually use Philly as an example. They're, they're in South Jersey because uh, South Jersey is pretty flat. Yep. And you're in South Jersey and you're looking out and like 40 miles away, you can still see the skyline of philadelphia and it's like if there's curvature on the earth that should be you know so and so feet below the horizon line i shouldn't be able to see the skyline because of that but here's the thing like that's one person saying that but i need to know what is the um typo- typography typography of the landscape when it comes to that like is it perfectly flat from where you're standing to Philly or is there hills? Are you standing on a hill? How high is that hill? Because that's going to adjust for, you know, there's so many things like people, they'll throw out these facts and it's like, it sounds good, but I need to know a lot more detail before I accept it. Right. I mean, you know, you can go, um, (laughs) there's just a lot of factors and a lot of variables when it comes to this kind of uh, situation. And I think the most important thing to remember is that even though, you know, we deal with uh, Earth's surface, which is very, you know, um, there's hills, there's valleys, there's mountains, um, you know, there's still the ability that you would be able to maybe uh, factor in the, um, you know, the skyline being higher or lower than what it should be. I think that that actually does make some sense to me, um, but it would be, it's hard to test that out. That's That's a good theory. Um, but that, that would be hard to test it out in my opinion. Right. I mean, cause the thing is like, say you say that it's, you know, eight miles is all flat. Is it really truly all flat? Because if we're talking about eight inches per mile, that's a lot of, um, that's a, that you don't have a lot of wiggle room. So if you're standing right. on a little mound that uh, that's 10 feet wide from you to, from you to me, it's five feet. If I'm standing on a little mound that raises me just an inch above you, you have to account for that for the overall equation of that eight mile stretch that you're looking at. You know what I mean? So like it has to be perfectly flat. Right. Which is why I think the airplane situation is your best, uh, your best judgment for that, you know, because you have the ability to keep it level. You have all of your, you have all of your, um, specific instruments that keep you level while you're flying. And so if you were able to keep that level and just fly straight and then uh, test out the difference in the height of the ground from where you started and where you finished or however they would do it scientifically, I, you know, I'm not a scientist and I'm not that smart, so I wouldn't be able to tell you. But I think that that would make sense. You know, you have a much more level playing field there uh, rather than trying to test it out on the surface. It just makes it more difficult. And you have a lot more, like you said, even if it's a one inch hill, you have a lot more uh, chance for your your uh, answer to be wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to before I go any further, I, I'm really surprised that you can actually hold a conversation about flat earth. I just brought it up to you to see what you'd say. <laughs> and we're actually having a 15 minute conversation here, but it's fine. It's fine. Uh, but because on that, I mean, one of the things they brought up and I actually think is pretty interesting and it's probably if it's wrong, it's because I'm not smart enough to understand the facts behind things. And 
I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? But one of the things that they brought up is that, so say you and me go outside tonight and we look up at the sky, clear sky, and we can see the Big Dipper. We can see Orion's Belt. We can see Orion. If we are, if we are way out in the country, we could see the Milky Way. You know what I mean? Like we could see all these stars and yeah. constellations. And if the Earth is spinning in a circle around the sun and one lap around the sun equals a year – then why is it that six months from now, when we're on the other side of the sun, we can still see the same constellations? You can only see the same constellations uh, at specific times of the year so um, and different times of night, too. So I've actually done this test kind of on my own at the house, uh, you know, at our house. Oh, you're a little flat earther. So, no, no, no. You're a little scientist. Yeah, it's just looking up at the constellation. So it makes sense from what they're saying. But if you think about it, see, I, I've looked. We have Orion directly behind our house uh, during the summertime. And when I look back there during the winter, uh, Orion is typically all the way on the opposite side of the house. So it's from back to front. Or you see uh, Orion just overhead, depending on the time of night that you look. Um, it would show you that not necessarily that you're seeing the same constellation at the same place at all times, because you're you're supposedly having an orbiting uh, Earth around the sun, as well as a rotating Earth, as well as a wobble, because uh, the axis doesn't stay uh, straight up and down. It, you know, it's the 23.7 degree tilt, as well as a little bit of a wobble. So you have all of this that factors into the constellations being in the sky and, and seeing certain things. And when you're looking at them at night, if you were to see, let's say, July, this is July something or other, you know, you'd be able to see Orion at the back of the house. And then when you go in December and you see Orion at the front of the house, it would show you that there is a rotation, possibly, and there is possibly a little bit of a difference in the orbit. Um, yeah, well, with, with that, with that, I mean, it, it is tough because I would think that at some point we're standing outside and we we identify just one star in the sky. And six months later, there's got to be one of those stars that we can't see because it's being blocked by the freaking sun. We're on the other side of the of the sun. Yeah, and again, let me just make sure I state that I am not a scientist. And these <laughs> like this rambling about, you know, Orion and crap like that. I'm not saying that I know this for fact or anything because, and I'd like to hear from people so that I know personally on a different level what other people think. I can't, like, I can't give you a definite, but at least from what I think, you know, and what I've seen, it would make sense if there was some sort of rotation or something like that, you know. Uh, yeah. I don't know. But I mean, it's, it's. Let me ask you a question. I mean, you're a Christian. Uh, people know I'm a Christian. If the earth was flat and it was proven to you the earth was flat, would that do anything to your your faith as far as strengthening your faith or anything like that? No, I have strong faith already. I'm not really worried about that. No matter what okay. I hear conspiracy wise, uh, you know, and they're not, to me, most things aren't, aren't theories. They're most things are facts, uh, that, you know, that you look into. Um, it wouldn't change anything about how I feel. You know, it, it might even, it, it might just make me think a little bit more about what's being told to me, what's being, you know, what word vomit is coming out of, you know, some official's mouth now. Um, and I look at it just as something to continue to research. I, I don't know. Like all this stuff has just, it's just well, completely. Why don't you, I mean, ha, not, have you looked into Flat Earth at all? Not, not really. Not all right. Really. Well, I mean, have you heard about Christians defending Flat Earth through Scripture? I haven't heard through Scripture, um, but I have heard other Christians de defend Flat Earth. No, I mean, 
apparently there's I don't know him offhand, but I, I did listen to a couple of videos that that supported this argument. Uh, that there are scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, uh, and the descriptions that is used in the Old Testament point to a flat earth, like the earth stands on the on the pillars, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you can take it as imagery, or you could take it as f- uh, factual. In Job, I know Book of Job, it talks about the firmament and things like that. And so, like, apparently... There's a guy, I can't remember his name on YouTube, but he talks about this and, and he's he really lays out an interesting argument uh, for that. Uh, I just, sometimes I, I look at scripture and I'm like, you know, I believe everything that's in the, in the scripture, right? But uh, yeah. I, I feel like when it comes to certain things like that, we have to have some wiggle room because like, these were real people back then who had real ideas and real knowledge according to those times. And is it fair for us to actually hold them to the standard of science of 2018 when they were alive 2000 years ago and they didn't know what we know. So, you know, according to the Bible and according to people back then, I mean, literally back then the common knowledge was the earth was flat, but is it fair for us to hold them to that standard and the scripture to that standard when it was written 2000 years ago and science isn't what it is today. But then you come back to the same thing where it's like, well, we don't trust science. We don't trust things that we're being told. And so, but my, my point in saying this is this, and I think I've probably said on the show before, I believe that the people who wrote the Bible uh, were real human beings with real life influences and yes. they thought real things and they weren't a hundred percent correct on the, certain things when it comes to their scientific viewpoints. Like I, I just, I mean, for instance, uh, oh, what was it? Um, oh, I forget now, but, uh, basically is what I'm saying is you can't expect them to be, have this like 2018 knowledge of science downloaded to their head 2000 years ago for the benefit of us in 2018. What if, God doesn't, you know, what if the, the, what if the scriptures carry on for another 2000 years and we're 2000 years away from now and we know so much more scientifically 2000 years later, is it fair for the people 2000 years ago uh, later to hold us to a certain standard that they hold because they know more than us. And it's like that, that's, I don't think that's sacrilegious. I'm not, I'm not saying that you can't believe what's in the scripture because I absolutely believe everything that's in the scripture. Uh, but some of the things when it comes to things like that, I think it, there. I think context is very important. I think Definitely. knowing the culture yes. and society that these people were writing these scriptures in is very important. Uh, they, you have to understand these things in order to make sense of things that are being written and said in the Bible. Uh, it's not just you read it and you take it. Like I know there's a lot of people that you know you read the scripture and you just take it for what it is. And that's it. You know, it's it is what it says what it says, and that's fact. Period in the story. And and I, I to a certain extent I do agree with that. But um at the same time, there there are contexts like what was going on in the time of Paul, what was going on in, in the world in the time of David, and things like that, that those things, the cultures, the societies, the governments, all those things help shape and mold the, the specific person that was writing the Bible. And you have to understand that culture and tech context behind them in order to understand on a deeper level, not understand, but understand on a deeper level what they were thinking and how they viewed things in those times. 
because right. uh, like you and I, I mean, we, we live in 2018 and we have Donald Trump as the president. We just came from Obama. And before that, I was Bush. Those three presidents have shaped and molded the society and culture around us. They have. Yes. And, big time, yeah. And you, you have to understand the leadership of this world in 2018, 2000 years from now, in order to understand why you and I think certain things the way we think it. Because if you take the way the world is 2,000 years from now, it's going to be totally different. And if they don't understand the context within what we were living in, they may not understand everything that we thought and said. Correct, yeah. You know, and something I think to really uh, think about, too, is, you know, we don't always view uh, when we look at Scripture or anything like that as though it was happening during the same time of, you know, Rome being a vast empire or the Ottoman having a vast empire or even the Persian Empire. We always look at it as though it's a separate entity. And you can't, you have to be able to understand that there's history with the Bible and, and a different manner in which you look at it, as well as what was going on um, around the world. Um, you know, there it wasn't that there was just a small plot of land that inhabited, you know, the millions of humans that were around then. It was still vast. You still had people in China. You still had people in England. You still had people in Egypt and everything. Um, and the science behind what they were doing is going to give you an idea of what was going on then and where they were driving a lot of their ideas or what they wrote down, you know, especially when we talk about just before, you know, I guess the, the uh, turn of the millennia from uh, before Christ to, uh, you know, um, after Christ, you know, and it, it's difficult to kind of uh, look at everything and take it in with a macro vision. Um, but you have to take what the whole world was looking at. And I, I think it was also more along the lines of the fact that there wasn't quite as much um, exploration across seas because the technology wasn't quite there yet. You know, I do question that, though. I do question that because I, I wonder if we did have more technology than what we think. I guess I'm just spewing everything I learned from 11th grade right? history, right? It, I'm it's, not it's, even thinking well, about no, it. it. You're, just... you're actually spewing the indoctrination, right? <laughs> right? Along with your own personal beliefs. And sometimes right. it doesn't make sense because five minutes later, you could be you could be saying the exact opposite of saying, well, I do believe that you know the Vikings were here long before Christopher Columbus. I guess technically I really do think they they had technology beyond what, we ex- what, what was taught to us. Um, but... From what we know and from what we can gather, there was no exploration prior to a Columbus type exploration or um, uh, Francis Bacon, you know, sailing around the world trying to find new ways going down past South America. Right. And that's the thing that, you know, we're not taught and there's no real clear, you know, that I've seen. Now, please, again, if I'm mistaken, show me something. That way I know and I can learn. But, you know, I'd say you're looking at something that there there's so there's a few kingdoms all in one area you know middle east uh the northern africa and then you have the the britain and, and uh empire up there and so it's it's you know it's one of those things where you're kind of you have to look at everything that they were studying what the scientists and what the astrologers and what the chemists and everything what they were gathering and see what the point of view would be for you know someone like luke or someone like paul or mark and get an idea exactly. of where their science was coming from, where their basis was. Because yeah. I'd imagine it's like you said, they had a mentality of flat earth where if you sailed too far, you'd go off because nobody knew For past sure. the horizon. So No, absolutely. And I actually vaguely remember uh, learning about that. And I think it was like Sunday school or something when I was a kid. I don't remember. But uh, yeah, 
it's definitely an interesting topic, and it's very definitely. I mean, that's why I'm looking into it. I mean, I don't do things that bore me. I just don't. Like you know, of anybody, like my family knows this. If I don't want to do something, what's what am I going to do? I'm not going to do not it. Not going to do it. Yep. I'm not going to do it. Like that's just who I am. Like if I don't want to do something, I'm not going to do it. And there's not one person in this world that can make me do it. It's just the way I am. But if I want to do something, I'm extremely ambitious about it. And I dive in a hundred percent. And that's the thing with me is I'm a very extreme person. It's one or the other. There is no middle ground with me. So like people that know me very well can see that they've accepted that. That's why they're in my life still. But like, I mean, <laughs> Luckily. I'm a, yeah, I'm just a very extreme person one way or the other. So the fact that I'm actually looking into flat earth and things like that, uh, it should tell you that I'm at least interested in it. I may not believe it, but it's very interesting. And, and the thing is taking it back to that, actually, one of the things that I find interesting, and it's not with flat Earth. I mean, it, I'm sure it can tie into the idea of flat Earth. But firstly, it, it, it has to set the ground and precedence of not trusting NASA. And they were showing me in this video that we were talking about earlier, this guy was, I think he was looking at Greenland. And in Greenland, everybody knows that Greenland is actually Iceland. Right. And he was doing satellite images. Uh, I shouldn't say that, actually. It, Greenland is actually covered in ice. It's not actually Iceland because Iceland's covered in green. Greenland's covered <laughs> in ice. And the reason why they did that, that actually, is the, the I think it was the yes. king of Greenland wanted people to actually come to his land. Yep. So he called it uh, Iceland. Or no, it was the other way around. The, the Greenland was actually covered in ice and iceland was covered in greenland greenland basically basically what i'm saying is the guy who was on land covered in ice named it the opposite so people would come visit him you know basically yes. <laughs> but anyways this guy co- zooms in on satellite images from google maps and uh he finds areas on Greenland that aren't covered in ice and he's looking at it and he's like, this looks a lot like Mars. There's a lot of rock, rocky landscapes and stuff that just look like Mars. And then he uh, zooms in more and he, uh, he finds a, a hill, a landscape, a hill that's identical to what a hill looked like on Mars that they showed us. They showed us a hill that, that look, our Rover, shot this picture from Mars and this is a hill, blah, blah, blah. It's identical. I'm talking identical. The only thing he different. matched it up for you? Yeah, oh, yeah. Took it and yeah, showed right you. next to each other. Everything. The little lines, everything was identical except for one thing. The Mars picture, the color of the, of yeah, the was, picture was, was like different. Red. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was like it had this reddish tint to it. Everything else was literally size, number of crevices, exact location. Everything was identical. And then he's he's zooming in across the landscape, and he's still in Greenland, and, <laughs> and he comes across a rover. He shows you that there's a rover there, and he zooms in on the rover, and it has the NASA logo on it. And then he showed other pictures. No. Yeah, I'm dead serious. I'll have to show you. I'll have to show you. The, the, the video is on Facebook, so if I can figure out how to put that on the website, I will. But well. I see now you can you can think of it as oh my gosh NASA you know planned this and they did all the shooting in green in Greenland that's ridiculous or could you then take it and with the reverse point of view and say well this guy was just trying to make views and he took a picture that they got from 
Mars and the Mars rover and did it so that he was discovering it on Greenland. Yeah, reverse engineering. And I'm not saying that happened because I I don't want to discredit anything. And if that's the case, that's freaking crazy. Like that they would be that open and dumb about it. Or or what what if there's more of a quote unquote innocent take to it where, yeah, it's NASA stuff. And yeah, that's a NASA picture. And yeah, it's not really Mars, but maybe these are all pictures and uh, like the picture I was just talking about the hill and even the rover. And they, he actually found NASA vehicles there and stuff. Wow. Like, but what if NASA is actually there in Greenland doing testing on things for a similar terrain that Mars would have? Well, that could be the case. I mean, in Greenland had the whole ice worm project that was going on for a while. Um, and I don't remember who that was. If that was, um, uh, I don't know if that was the Nazis or America. I can't remember. Uh, you know, forgive me, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in Greenland because Greenland just nobody goes there. I mean, it's not a very common place to go. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm not trying to discredit that, but you know, we always look at it from one point of view that they're they're trying to fool us. But what if the person who who wanted to get some views or thought it would be really cool? You right. know, you never know. And, and again, I'm not I saying mean, that he did that. No, you're absolutely right. Because, I mean, you can't trust everybody that makes content on the Internet is going to give you the truth as they found it because that doesn't make sense because they want as many views as possible. Right. See, we say we all say, especially in this community, as close as we are, we all say we should question everything. But we forget to question the people that are putting out the products that we ingest. So we look at that kind of video and we right. don't question it because we trust them for some reason. And yeah, we I mean, don't trust the people who give us the crap that we know is crap. You know? Yeah, and it's like we don't – like I don't trust the mainstream media. I've said it a million times. Definitely I don't trust the mainstream don't. media. I don't talk – I'm not just talking about CNN and MSNBC. I'm talking about Fox News too. I'm talking yeah. about all of them. I don't watch mainstream media. Well, how do you get your news? I find out something bad went down. I plug into them just to find out what their storyline is and I unplug as fast as possible. I don't yes. want – and I don't let mainstream media manipulate how I view things. I refuse. I got them out of my head years ago. And it took time. Like, like I remember the transition period of me deciding I'm going to turn off mainstream media for a while to see how I view things a few months later. And the transition of that, like you start noticing your viewpoints are starting to change and you're like, huh, that's odd. And then like six months later, all of a sudden you're looking back at things and you have a totally different mindset. And the only thing that changed is you stop plugging into mainstream media and all of a sudden you're starting to learn how to think on your own. And I, 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 I personally encourage everybody to plug, uh, unplug from mainstream media at least a little bit and, and, th- and, and start <laughs> learning how to think for yourself again. But I say all that because we don't trust mainstream media. Like mainstream, like I don't, and I know you don't. We, as in you and I, do not trust mainstream media. Why are we so quick to trust a guy who made a YouTube video? I think the, I think the thing too to think about. You know, we're talking about mainstream media here just a little bit, and we don't think about also the fact that Facebook is definitely like our mainstream media now because for they, sure, there's, and they know it. Oh my gosh, yeah, and that was the whole point too was to control the narrative through something that you were going to be addicted to. You know, we, we we can turn off the news because nobody's necessarily addicted to that. But when you're addicted to something that gives you that, like, they, like, the, like the creators said, they had that dopamine hit every time you'd hear that noise of the like button right. or anything like that. You see that little red bubble? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know, I, like, yeah. I know that for a fact. Like, how many people out there, I know it's, it's very true for me. When I see the notifications on my phone, I have to hit it. It bothers me that I have notifications on my phone 
that haven't been opened yet. I don't even have to read them. I just need to get rid of that red bubble. It's like an addiction. It's yep. really like, an, and like you can turn that off and I've done that yeah. before, but then I, I find myself going to these, these things just to make sure there's no red exactly. bubble. Exactly. You get to the point of curiosity. You're like, oh no, do I have something? Do I not? But anyway, I mean, the point was just that, you know, they can still control the narrative there and we're so plugged in. We're so tied to, you know, those kind of things that even though, you know, I, I haven't watched news in like a year or two now. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, I, I never once was a consumer conspiracy theorist or had thoughts of anything like this until maybe a year or two ago i think it was you're welcome yeah and you said something to me and you said you were Look at you it. were so you oh were so gosh. anti like when it came to like the bigfoot thing when i which is what i started with and i everything. scoffed so hard oh my. i looked so down yeah. at him it was <laughs> and, and and you were knocking me and you were laughing at me and all, all of a time. sudden i remember you're like Showing me that you're like, oh, this was this was interesting. Oh, this was interesting. I'm like, huh? And you kind of went down a rabbit hole that I didn't go down. Like, like you yeah. really, you really dig conspiracies, and I do too. Yeah. But like, you have a you have a different mind than I do. Now I'm 10 years older than you. I'm 32. You're 22. But you are a highly intelligent person, and you comprehend things in a way that I don't. And so when you're listening to these podcasts and watching these videos and stuff, and these people are talking about deep conspiracies with masons and things like that, like you're comprehending things that. I don't comprehend on the first take and you start rattling things off to me. And I'm like, dang, this kid's got something going on as far as like his mind being able to consume this stuff and actually understand it uh, in a, in a cohesive way consistently. And so like, I, I think it's pretty cool that you're on board with things now. And like, <laughs> like now you're like questioning everything and that's good. Yeah, like, not all conspiracy theories are factual. Not all of them are. And in fact, probably most of them aren't, but right, yeah, you have to have that mind of understanding that, listen, your government isn't always going to do everything for the best interest of you. You want to think that. You want to think that, hey, they work for us. We put the president in place. We they, like, They're there to protect us, and that's it. Listen, the government is very, very big, and there are lots of people involved and lots of people in play. And I'm not talking about just our government, governments. And they are not doing everything in the best interest of the people they never have you know even if you go you know they we have a democratic republic um and that's one of the most free societies you can get right um but we pay for that i mean taxes come out of our uh, of our paychecks weekly we pay for that freedom regardless of what people think on top of the fact that there's so much else that goes on in government that we don't know about because it's you, you you run the the risk of being unplugged too much to the point of not knowing what's going on in your government when we say that we're supposed to have a say in certain things and we don't you know we elect these officials to to be on the best interest of the people so that they can run as a sort of um you know uh separate entity from us but in our best interest and then they don't you know, we see them doing things that is going to better uh, their paycheck or better, you know, their standing in Washington on top of other countries throughout history that have just done things that are completely terrible for their people, but best for the for the politicians and best for the government officials. Right. And I mean, the, the, one of the things that I, I really don't like and I think needs to change and it never will, but term limits. <clears throat> I sounded like a little girl there. <laughs> term limits. <laughs> no, but term limits. I mean, yeah, like. They, these senators are lifelong, man. Yeah. Like, you think that they're going to constantly 
all the time do the what's best for the people that elected them in there. No, they're going to do what's best for them to keep their job. So which means two years from their having to run again for their spot. They're already campaigning, which means they're not putting all their effort into doing the things that we sent them there to do in right. the first place. Term limits is necessary. The term limits we have on the presidency needs to extend to Senate, too. We're not short of people who can actually be senators and senators. It's like you, you can like, for instance, Arizona. McCain has been the senator from Arizona for how long? Very long time. And, and so and I, whether you're pro-McCain or anti-McCain, I, I don't care about that. What I'm saying is he has been in for so long. Are you telling me that there's nobody in that state that could have done the job as good, just as good as McCain did? Yeah. No, there's definitely been. But, yeah, exactly. And, and so what you're doing is when you put term limits on, you, you're now wiping away the – well, not all of it, but – you're taking away the chances of corruption because now this person knows they have an end date. They have an end date and they're going to be replaced. So there's no need to try protecting your job because you know you're going to lose your job eventually. You're not a career politician. You're just a politician temporarily. I don't know how we got on that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, and it's tough. You know, we, we're talking about, you know, uh, questioning everything and the fact that the government, you know, is it, it's not always out for our best interest. So we should question those kind of things. Um, and I agree with that because, you know, we don't want to go down the track of just trusting everything blatantly, you know, throwing our own morals and our own thoughts out of the window. But it's it's um, I just heard this video. It might have been on, on another podcast that we both uh, enjoy. Uh, what is it? Ground Zero. Oh, yeah. Clyde Lewis. Love, it love, was, love him. It wasn't like the person had everything. Uh, laid out completely in the video it was it was just like a, a i guess a radio snippet or something um from 1945 and the guy was was saying on the radio snippet that you know we'll in two, in 2045 we'll throw away our our uh what is it um oh my gosh i'm forgetting the word. it's like our humanity or, or our our own oh that's what our individual rights for the sake of security there's gonna oh, be yeah, a camera on yeah. every corner and you know that's already other, happening. Other things like that is like you know goofy little things like a a, a, a TV is going to be on your wrist. But other things you know that were out of out of you know the picture that weren't right. And so you knew that it wasn't like he was trying to predict it so accurately that he and it was amazing that he got it all right. But he had certain things that were right, and to me that's one of them. You know, you run the risk of if you just continue to trust everyone and every official that you're going to go down that road now. Like especially like it is. You know, I'm sorry to some of the our British folk, but it, there's the CCTV <laughs> over there that's everywhere. And I mean, I love you guys from Britain, but that's crazy. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's too much, but it's it's just you run that risk, and we're getting to that point. You said we're already there. I mean, I think you know we're we're going to be there shorter than you know sooner than later. Absolutely. I mean, and I, what you were just saying about the English, like you were talking about Luke, because we have a patron <laughs> named Luke, and he's from England. We have a lot of listeners Luke. from, yeah, we have a lot of listeners from England, but uh, Luke is just, he's a hilarious guy. But no, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I mean, like he, or not he, but they are going to be putting things up like that all over the place. I mean, you go into any major city and you ha like go to D.C., you go to D.C. and there are cameras everywhere, but not just D.C., every city, even towns now, like little towns. Like, listen, bottom line is this. You are CCTV. Everybody yeah. has a phone yeah, and a microphone I totally in their pocket. And anything that goes down gets recorded now. Before people jump in to help somebody, they'll record it. Yeah. That's a society that's been curated. Well, and two, I know that's, that's a What's the word I was looking for? Not curated. Is it curated right Created? Word? 
Sure. Orchestrated? Orchestrated. Let's just go with orchestrated. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I totally agree with you. And it's not even just that. It's the fact that, too, you know, it, um, who was it? Snowden uh, leaked the fact that NSA, the NSA records everything on your phone. Whatever you do, whatever's going on, um, on top of the fact that they can just hack into your microphone like that. You know, they do it on your computers. They do it on your right. TVs, Samsung smart TVs. You know, be careful. <laughs> But seriously, it's it, they do that, and you know, to me, you're that's, such a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> oh my gosh! No, but I totally, you know, I, I think of it as though, you know, it's not just that you record things and that you do things, but they do things without your knowledge. They're gonna do things without your knowledge, and you know, we say they as like a grand and, and broad, you know, um, perspective, but. You know, we don't know everyone that's behind the scenes on this. It could be our government. It could be many governments. And it could be like we've always – everyone here probably knows the shadow, the shadow figures, the Illuminati. Everyone thinks that kind of stuff. But there really is something going on that we don't know. 100%. And that we can't do anything about. Right. And so the best thing I always think that we can do, and I'm thankful that like my eyes were open. You know, I was like that movie Eyes Wide Shut. I was like totally, uh, totally for not even looking at anything and thinking about it. Yeah, you thought I was crazy. Totally, and that's the point that they they drive into you to not think about it because you're going to be crazy. Um, but and you know, and, and and that's the thing. Like we live in a society where we are so image driven. They have created yeah. a culture and a society of people who are so scared to be looked at differently they nobody wants to stand out and be like oh I'm, and and the whole idea oh they're weird nobody well nobody wants that 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 label on themselves and so instead of looking into things and and even giving it a chance they just stay away from it because those are the weird people and it's like you're becoming a sheep you're you're now going with the herd of people and saying nope those are the outliers they're the weird people they're the conspiracy theorists we can't believe anything that they say here's the bottom line a good detective is a conspiracy theorist because detectives, what's their job? Their job is to conspire or their, their job is to theorize how things conspired. That's a detective's yeah, exactly. job. Yeah. So any good detective is a conspiracy theorist by the definition of it. And so I have no problem saying I'm a conspiracy theorist. I have no problem saying that. Now, does that make me a bad guy? I don't know, but it is what it is. I don't yes. believe in every conspiracy <laughs> out there. I don't believe in every conspiracy out there. Most of the ones I hear, I think, well, it's interesting, but, you know, but the fact is there are real things out there going on that they don't want you to know about. Looking at, yeah. I mean, the, the the most classic one for our country is looking at JFK. Yeah. And, you know, it's like I was saying, there's just nothing, you can't do anything specifically about that shadow government, but what you can do is constantly be on the lookout, constantly you know, look into new things. It's like we were talking about bringing it all the way back to the very beginning. You know, we were talking about the flat earth and, you know, I have never looked into it uh, very thoroughly, maybe at a glance, but you should always look into things, always be vigilant, trying to find new things out. And so you can better yourself and constantly be trying to inform other people too. And I know it's tough because it's like we were just talking about, we try to be on, you know, in the best sort of, uh, yeah, look out at all time. We want people to see us in a really good way at all times. Everybody's image conscious, but <laughs> you know there are some times when we just we have to throw that to the wayside and you know give way to what is truth. You know. Yeah, absolutely, man. I I totally get it. 
but uh, I think we just ran my intro almost 50 minutes. <laughs> oh my gosh. But uh, it's we good still, thing I ran into you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, we're still going to have our interview and everything, but I think that was crazy. You Sorry, know, I just everyone. saw something because you said about uh, earlier about, we, or maybe I said about Masons and stuff. Uh, you told me that, and I knew this, but I didn't know how high of a level he was. You know, our grandfather, our mom's dad, was a Mason. What would you say, a 32nd degree Mason? Yeah, 32nd degree. Um, and he wasn't a Scottish Reich, uh, which, you know, that's, uh, it would have been a little bit more interesting if he was. Um, but Lame. Yeah, he was, a, there's there's three uh, specific levels, and he was a journeyman, um, which means that he was uh, at the point where if he would have continued, uh, throughout the rest of, you know, if he would have had any more life left, uh, he would have been able to become a Master Mason. Um, he was very close. Master Mason is level 33. Um, and they appoint you journeymen because you then, you teach the young ones coming up. I forget what they're called. Um, but, yeah, so he was he was a 32nd degree Mason. Um, and he was actually pretty prominent in, uh, you know, where he was in the specific lodge. So, Yeah, so, I mean... It's interesting that our grandfather, I remember when he died, I was a little kid and I don't even know if you were born yet. Maybe you were like, I was, you're yeah, probably I was a like baby or three, something. I think when he died, I remember at his funeral, he had the, the Masons come in or they had the Masons come in yeah. and, uh, they did a ceremony and things like that. Didn't understand it. I thought it was a little weird, but whatever they were wearing, I think these like large purple hats or something like that. And oh. yeah, I mean, it was wow. really weird, dude. It was really weird, but, uh, you know, I don't know. It's funny because there's a guy at work who is a he's a huge conspiracy theorist. I mean, ta- I'm talking huge. I mean, I was talking to this kid on the dock and he like pretty much any conspiracy I threw at him. He's like, yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. Like, like I wouldn't say I don't want to make him sound like he's gullible, but uh, he's very in it. He's just very into conspiracy theorists. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's a Mason. Uh, okay. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, dude, you're into all these conspiracies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, how are you a Mason? And he just looked at me and smiled. And he's like, well, my dad's a Mason and blah, blah, blah. I'm like. Yeah, but that not that kind of the perfect uh, dichotomy right there? You know, he's he's a Mason, but he's he's so into all this stuff that is against Mason. Like, you know, everyone, right, exactly. everyone seems to be against. But he could also be like one of those awesome people that gets the knowledge from within knows what they do and then is able to kind of be a tr- literally someone who speaks the truth and gives you an idea from what was yeah. and what really is you know i didn't get the sense that he was thinking along those lines that'd be great of, if you would. it's just crazy because like he he was all about conspiracies and then the one day i'm in my car getting ready to go to work and i see the back of his jeep and it has a mason's logo uh, symbol on it and i was like what? And I asked him about it and he's like, yeah, you know, stuff. I'm like, I feel like he has some kind of like blind bias towards it where like he's so in conspiracy theories, but I don't think he, he at least didn't strike me as the guy who's going to dive into the conspiracies about the Masons. One of the biggest conspiracies of them all. Yeah. I think he yeah. might be scared. And well, I, th- I know he listens to the show, so I'm just calling him out on that. <laughs> I think he might be scared. I, I don't necessarily know. Yeah, yeah, It's hard. I don't know what all is, uh, what knowledge is given to anyone at what level I'd imagine as soon as you get up, you know, to the highest of levels, that's when you start to understand whatever it is that goes on. And I'm not a Mason. So to, you know, to the work, to the fellow worker of my brother here, I can't tell you what goes on. You would know better than I, but, 
uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. They're always really interesting to look into and try and yeah. understand. And then when you hear people who at least claim that they were former Masons and the things that went on, like yeah. uh, there's a guy yeah. named, and I would love to have him on the show, but he doesn't return my emails calling out somebody else. <laughs> but his name is uh, William Schnoblin. Uh, he is uh, somebody who used to be an atheist or not. Yeah, well, no, he wasn't an atheist because he believed there was a God. He was a satanic uh, individual where he was a satanic high priest. And okay. like a high priest can be somebody who created their own coven and they're only a coven of one. So they're the high priest or sure, they could be yeah. a high priest of 30 people. So I don't know, but I know <laughs> he was a high priest and uh, he also at one time was a Catholic. He was oh. also one time a Mormon and he was also a Mason and they all tie together with his story. It's a fascinating story. Wow. Yeah. And so I would love to have him on the show and stuff. But I mean, he talks about the Masons and he details things that like you either have to just like with um, uh, King, uh, well, Zach King. When we oh, had Zach King yeah, on the yeah. show and stuff, when you listen to that interview, it's very fascinating. And, but the, the the audience, and I said something in the show for that episode. You have to make a decision if you're going to believe this believe this person or not. That's not my job. That's nobody else's job except for you. Like you're gonna you're gonna hear details laid out by somebody who says they're in the know, and you have to make a decision whether you're going to believe them or not. The same thing with William Schnoblin. He has so many details about the Masons and different things like that. At some point, you have to say, "Do I believe this person? Do I kind of believe this person a little bit on some of the things he says, or is he full of BS?" That's that's a decision that the audience has to make on every episode I put out. You know what I mean? I'm presenting the stories for you to hear that people say happened to them. And now it's your job to decide whether you believe that or not. And don't be lazy with it either. Like when you hear something that you don't agree with, like instead of rejecting it right away, think about it and dive into it and try to prove why it's not true. You know what I mean? And, yeah. like, and sometimes people you know, have these answers right, right away. Well, it's not true because of this. Take what you just said, the fact that you just spewed out, research that fact and make sure that it's not something that you just were told so you believe it, like you're not doing with this person, but actually research the truth that you just spit out, find out, is it really true? And then build from there. Like I, I really encourage people to build a foundation and go build a foundation, then build your house. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and so exactly. uh, it, it as so many times people are so reactionary because we live in this social media driven age where everything moves so fast. You have to have an opinion right away and everybody reacts right away because five minutes from now it's going to be old news. So we got to react right away, right away, right away. Slow down, relax, build a foundation of knowledge, build that house and see what the house looks like at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. But right now what we're doing is we're like, that's not true because of this, you know, like, like that, you're not you're t not telling me the truth. That's not the right kind of roof on my house because I got these windows <laughs> over here. Well, uh, research it. Make sure that the windows are the right proper windows to support the roof that that person's saying is real. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. I don't know if that makes any sense. Not but really, but I, you know, <laughs> I get what you're going at. <laughs> so, anyways, we uh, ran this way longer than I thought. But hey, this was kind of fun and spontaneous here. I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. didn't. I wasn't sure if you were going to be coming down tonight or not and sleeping over, but it's pretty. Pretty cool that you were on here, and uh, hopefully the audience likes it because I'm not going to I'm not going to cut anything out. So, <laughs> wow. Well, good luck, guys. Yeah. I'm sorry this is going to be a long one. Yeah, but anyways, um, we have Elaine coming on tonight, and uh, Elaine's going to be sharing some of her experiences that she had throughout her entire life. Jack, uh, Elaine came on a few months ago. I recorded with her a few months ago, and she experienced uh, a lot of stuff throughout her life. I mean, for instance, just to put it this way: her dad was a Christian, her mom was a Wiccan. 
And that's just like uh, 1% of her story. So Elaine's going to come on and she's going to share, I think it's probably over an hour to an hour and a half of her just sharing her story. I don't talk a whole lot during this interview, but it's just her. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) I talked enough now, but (laughs) it's just her sharing her story. And it's a very fascinating story. And when she is done, her and I are going to talk a little bit. Show's going to be over. But here's the thing. I'm going to bring her back on for a Patreon episode where people can call in and actually engage with her, ask her questions and things like that. Elaine does have a book coming out and stuff. Uh, she'll talk about it on the show. So without any further delay, here's Elaine right after this. Ah, I got them because they thought, <laughs> oh, here's Elaine. But no, we're going to go, we're going to, go to uh, commercial first. So boom. Wow. <laughs> we'll be right back. And you guys like this show. Okay, tonight I have Elaine coming on, and Elaine and I connected uh, a while back, and Elaine actually has a book that she has published, and she's actually looking to come out with a couple more books. So, Elaine, how are you? I am fine, Tony. How are you? This is a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we we had some discussion here before the show kicked off, and I I know you have lots of experiences, and so we're going to actually do this in a two part series. We're going to have you share your experiences uh, tonight on the show, and then we're going to bring you back on for a follow up episode where you kind of dive into more uh, ideas and you know your own thoughts behind certain things, and it'll be more dialect between you and I. And we're going to bring you back on for a patron episode, and I'm really excited about that. So. Um, but if you would like to, for us tonight, would you start us off with how you got involved in this paranormal type community? Uh, and what were some of those experiences that kind of jump-started you into this? Um, sure. Well, um, I'm actually a um, 59-year-old. I live near Wichita, south of Wichita. Um, I have experienced things, I want to say, almost from the moment I was born, but that's pretty much just to say I was born into it. It didn't take very long before I noticed, uh, probably about five or six years old, that I was able to sense things. And, and I would often go, I guess, and tell my mother, you know, I saw a shadow, I saw a light, you know, I saw something, you know, like an orb, something flying around the room. And um, she took me seriously. My mother actually um, tended to be sensitive. Unfortunately, the downside to that is my mother never counted herself to be religious in any form. Um, I am related on her side to John and Charles Wesley. So my family grew up in the Methodist religion, Methodist doctrine, but my mother wasn't a big churchgoer. And some things happened and she got turned sideways and she got into Wicca. She got into um, mild forms of witchcraft. And um, about age 12, she brought a Ouija board into the house. My dad was a, was a Christian and um, she was trying to teach me how to do that one night, and we'd actually had a session when he walked in the room, and I don't, I was asked to leave, and I don't really know what happened too much, except I never saw the object again, at least if she kept it. It wasn't in my sight. Um, he wasn't going to stand for any of that nonsense, but um, pretty much as a child, I could hear, in my book, I talk about um, being able to hear a song in my head like, uh, playing music of some sort, and um, I would uh, walk over to a radio, and I would turn it on, and it would be playing at the exact point in that song 
that I was hearing it in my head, even though the radio had not been on. Um, I would uh, think of family members or close friends, and I would get in contact with them and learn that the time that their name came to my mind, that uh, they were going through something or had been hurt or were in an accident or whatever the case may be. So it was pretty much as much as my right arm, I guess, that I've lived in this, but it's a culture that in my day, 50, 40, 50 years ago, was not necessarily accepted for public conversation. So I had to bury a lot of it. And um, I can remember at uh, age probably just right about 12, my uh, family, I come from a musical background, and my dad had started a band and started a um, uh, performing way back in the 40s, and that carried over to when I he met my mom at a dance, actually, and I was came along and got older and started playing several instruments. And um, he started uh, what was called the Kansas Old Time Fiddlers, Pickers, and Singers here locally, and it went for 50 years before it disbanded a few years ago. And we were waiting on a performance that particular day and sitting out in the car and I asked my father I said what does the age of accountability mean and he told me and said when you begin to know the difference between good and evil right and wrong and you're then able responsible for your choices and okay well that was about all there was to it went to the performance and not much happened but I noticed about that time as I was my father had been praying for me but I didn't know for you know number of years that he had done that but I noticed that things kind of changed in the home. And um, I began to get more interested in what my mother was involved in. And between 12 and 13, I had thought, you know what? I've been bullied all my life. I was kind of this odd kid, you know. So I was one of these that was bullied and picked on. And so I didn't like a lot of kids. And I thought I wanted to cast spells on them. So I began to read some books and to look into that kind of stuff. And this was when mom had gotten the Ouija board and we did this and time or two and the things scared the living daylights out of me. I'm thinking, okay, because this this is real, I think I'm not going to mess with it. So after a session or two, I I backed off. That's just enough. But um, I I began to think it'd be kind of cool to take care of some of these bullies and to, you know, have some of the things I want by commanding it and by having power over it. So I was really seriously thinking of becoming a witch. And um, I was in the Salvation Army, grew up in it, loved the church, loved the loved the people. And um, I had been in it since I was eight, had a good foundation. I actually had um, had been quite involved in it. And so I had that solid foundation, but... Um, I was the only one who went. My dad was, I'm product of older parents, so my dad didn't feel like it much of the time. Working was all he could do. And my mom, of course, wasn't interested in church, as I said. They would drop me off, pick me up, or I'd get a ride home. But whenever I was in a performance or doing something at the church, I could count on them to be there. They they were very supportive in most anything I did. But um, I thought, man, this is pretty interesting. And I started looking at these books and reading these really weird stories and stuff. And my mom didn't seem to care, didn't seem to bother her, but I think it made my dad a little nervous. So he was kind of pleased when I asked that question. And this was going on during the time that I was uh, signed up to attend a Salvation Army Youth Council in Wichita. And um, that was the weekend that I gave my life to Christ. 
And uh, all that other stuff I knew had to go out the window. There was a tremendous pull on me, really strong pull. And uh, I almost didn't go forward. And I thought, you know what, I, I think I probably need this. Because I knew the pull of the environment at home was, even if she was not a supportive faith, um, I went to church. That was fine. She didn't want to be involved. She did continue to still come if I had a performance. But by the time I got to teens, you know, I didn't bother inviting her because I knew she wasn't interested. My father did get back. Um, I went from the uh, Salvation Army into Pentecostalism, and my father did, I like this church, we're going to go ahead and, and go, and he became a part of the band again. I became church pianist at 16, so I had that camaraderie with my father. So I had him as a support. My mother says, as long as you don't bother me, you go ahead. And uh, there was always tension in the home because of the things that were going on that she was doing, but she, no one outside of the home. Not a one knew my mother was in this, but there was such control and manipulation. She held such a power over the environment of the household that even my father was afraid to cross her. And he had a workshop. He wrote stories, but he wrote them through nine-inch reel-to-reels, and he was a mystery buff, too. Um, he grew up running, working in Fox Theaters, running the old classic Wolfman and Frankenstein movies, and I just thought they were the bomb. They were pretty cool. So I grew up around this with uh, watching these films and thinking, you know, my father said, these are just films. These are just shows. So I never really thought anything one way or the other about it. So I never really was afraid of this stuff. And But my mother, I have to admit, I was afraid of a lot. I, I, I only crossed her once, and that was just all I did was give an opposing opinion. I was knocked into the wall, and I never did it again. And my father would seldom ever cross her. So that's how strong of a hold this had in the home. This was what I came to Christ under. So there was immediately a battle. There was always a battle up until the day my mother passed. And um, the week after I came to Christ, I had a dream. And this dream was really kind of kind of neat. And I was standing at the end of, at the time, what was my driveway. And I looked down the road and I saw a figure with a little boy and a little girl on each side. And as the figure got closer, I knew... It represented what we in Western culture view Jesus to be, the white and the beard and, you know, all that stuff. And um, so that was the image that was projected. And he stopped in front of me and he said, would you like to go with me? And I suggest and took his hand and the other two kids and I walked on and I woke up. That's all there was. And I knew then that the decision was real. It was a right and I've maintained it for now going on about 47 years. But that didn't change my sensitivity to the spirit world. And as a matter of fact, it probably increased it because throughout my life, I've had multiple what I would call prophetic or warning or intuitive dreams. Um, I would know when there was a, like I would meet someone and I could sense a spirit about them, whether they were someone that I should relate to or not. Um, I could walk into a building and know that there was something in there that shouldn't be. Um, I have looked at houses growing up and wanting to rent and and purchase houses, and I'd walk into it, and I would know immediately this was, this was not it. There's something wrong with this house. Whether or not it was haunted, there was still an atmosphere I didn't want. And the first experience I had with a spirit, an evil spirit, was um, at age um, 18, and I just graduated high school. My parents decided to retire to the family farm 
Um, the house, unfortunately, was no longer livable. So they lived about five miles away, got another house. And um, I decided I'd like to just stay here. I had a good job. I liked my church. And, okay, I'm, you know, stay here. I didn't want to go to college right away. I got a job. And so a friend and I rented an apartment. We weren't there very long before something just was, it just didn't seem like something was just wrong. And um, I came home one night and started to get supper. And um, there was just a, um, a mist, I want to say, just a mist, a dark gray mist. I could see through it, but it was enveloping the area where I was sitting on the sofa. I knew it wasn't good. So I turned on the record player sitting beside me, and it had a gospel record on it. And when I turned that on, the mist would retreat back into what was her bedroom at the time. And I said, okay. Um, something's going on here. And so when the record finished and I went to turn it over on the other side, it quickly came towards me again. Sense of really, I wouldn't say impending doom, but you could just sense that something was just definitely wrong with this. I turned the record on to the other side, played it, it retreated back to the wall. As long as the record was playing, the thing stayed away from me. So when he ended at supper, the record had stopped when I was in the kitchen and, um, it came and, and um, blocked the doorway and it wouldn't let me pass. It turned the record back on. It was almost like a physical sensation of holding hands out in front of it. But I said, Jesus, it really, I don't know what's going on, but I need your help here. And I passed through it, turned the record on. It finally retreated back into the wall and, and stayed there. But then my friend came home and I told her what had happened. And she uh, listened and she says, um, you know, the same thing happened to me about three or four days ago. She said, I didn't say anything because I thought I was imagining it. And pretty soon we began to notice that um, cabinets were opening and closing. We could see them open and close in the kitchen and bathroom. We started hearing noises. We started hearing um, just kind of odd sounds. We didn't know what they were, couldn't pinpoint them. And um, finally, one night, um, we uh, came home from a church service and we both got ready for bed. And lights turned out and I'm in my bedroom and she's in hers and all of a sudden she says um Elaine do you feel anything really odd and I said well a little bit I suggest kind of the same sensation I felt earlier she says it's really bad in here we discussed it for a minute and laid there and pretty soon she jumped up out of bed and she says my closet she says there's something there and my first reaction was, well, do you have something hanging in there, you know, that maybe looked like it was a form? But no, I didn't get that asked because uh, she came flying out of her bedroom and she says it's coming towards me. She says there's something in this house that doesn't want us there. Let's leave. So at midnight, we leave, go down the stairs on a dead run, and we didn't go back to the apartment for several days. And when we did, we went back together and got our stuff. And about a week later, uh, we met at church again and uh, a mutual friend was talking to my friend about it and she said how do you like your apartment and she said well we were there about about a month but she says we're not there anymore and she said well why'd you leave and the friend told her and you know I'm listening and when she told her she said what what was that address again and we told her and her eyes the, the mutual friend's eyes got big around and she says oh I know that playhouse and I know those people 
And uh, we said, what do you mean? She says, well, it's a good thing you left when you did. She says, uh, it's an old couple, apparently, that actually owned it, but they were heavy into witchcraft and despised Christians. Anybody associated with church, anybody claimed to be a person of faith, and she said, they likely conjured up something to get you out. And uh, I imagine if they had known that you were Christians before you rented it, they wouldn't have let you in the door. And that was my first experience. Rather an eye-opener, let me say. And I was dating a guy not long after that. We get another house over about, I would say, 45 minutes over in a town called Cedarville, Kansas. And this house was provided as part of a job. And so we didn't have any rent to pay, but this house was literally huge. It was about two miles from town, set up on the hill, and uh, was about four levels when you count the basement and the upper attic area. And this was huge. And newly married, and we both had jobs over there. So, you know, we were in and out. We just kind of used the front part. But the day we, I and a friend went over to look at it, just kind of, I don't know, you want to call it kind of a gray atmosphere, I guess. It was a drizzly March day, but, you know, was that didn't seem to be the cause of the atmosphere. It just felt cold. It felt uh, gray. It felt oppressive. I would say the word oppressive. I thought, man, this is weird. Well, my friend felt it too. This was another friend. And um, I said, ah, what's going on? Anyway, we were walking through the house. First, I'd seen it. And my then husband came pulling up on the way to one of the fields. It was a, a ranch job he'd had. He saw my car there and he pulled in and wanted to know how I liked it. I said, well, that's pretty cool, you know. And I said, this kind of feels weird in here. And I said, there was a lot of stuff that had been moved out, but the house hadn't been clean. There was papers around. But when you walk into the kitchen, everything was there. The pots were on the stove. The food, of course, was 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 decayed and old. The refrigerator was was well stocked. The um, uh, kitchen table was spread just like um, someone was sitting down to dinner. We walked in, and I thought, this is really weird. Look at this, you know, look at this. And it's, yeah, somebody left in a big hurry. Well, it turns out that uh, the boss that my husband was working for had told my husband after our visit when he inquired what that was like, what happened, why didn't they clean out the kitchen? He said, you know, I don't know. He said, but here's what I can tell you. And the guy that owned it had, that was uh, providing it that came with the property he rented for the ranch. And so that's why he was able to let his tenants go ahead and use it, some of his um, help. And he said, I came by one evening from the North Field, and he said, they had the pickup backed up to the door, and they said, uh, he said, what's going on? He says, we're getting out. There's something in this house. I don't know what it is, but we can't stay here anymore. And he said, well, what's wrong? He said, I don't know. He said, we're hearing noises. Our names are being called. And he says, nobody's there. It's coming from upstairs. It's creepy. We're leaving. And he said, I was going to come tell you, I don't want to do you this way, but we can't stay. And the boss is thinking, well, okay, you know, come down, I'll pay you. And so they left. He went back an hour later, and the family was gone. We were the second party that had moved in after this family left. And the second party, or the first party ahead of us did not stay long either. They stayed three months, and they were gone. So we're party number three. And we're in there a month, and there was a – I had experienced nothing other than really weird – seeing the kitchen table all spread for dinner, somebody left in a rush. 
They took just what they wanted and left everything out. We cleaned it out. We moved in. Husband went to work. I went to work. You know, no big deal. About three weeks after we were there, big Kansas storm comes up. Thunder, lightning, all kinds of stuff. I'd never seen one like that, and I've lived here about all my life. That uh, Cedarville is far enough east that where I live has two rivers. It's a town called Arkansas City. has two rivers, so we generally don't get all of the storms that uh, they get east. When it goes east, it will conjure a pretty good storm because out in the Flint Hills and it's open territory and everything, so away it goes. We're sound asleep in this cub. Boom. Happens. And rolls us both out of bed. And... My husband grabs on to me, and I said, oh, man, just a storm. You know, don't worry about it. You know, no big deal. And I go back to sleep. Well, he tried, but he couldn't. And he gets up, and he goes on to work. I get up, and I go to work out. The, we both leave out the back door. I come from work in the back door, but he comes from work in the front door. And he says, hey, Lane, come here, man. I want to show you something. Come outside. I did. And there were bricks all over the yard, burned as black as charcoal. And he says, I said, where are those from? He said, from our chimney. And he says, look up on the roof, and there's a six-foot hole diameter in the roof. And I says, my gosh, what happened? He says, that broom we heard was lightning hitting the house. Now, remember, the house is four stories up on top of a hill, nothing else for miles. The boss lived three miles one direction. The town was two miles to the west and nothing else north and and." and east of us. So it's kind of there. It's just a lightning rod waiting to happen. So it didn't surprise me it was hit, but it had never been hit before. And I said, wow. So we, I'd never been upstairs in the house the whole time we were renting it. This house was huge. We just used the uh, bedroom, bathroom downstairs and the living room, the kitchen. That's pretty much all we used. But there was a whole nother big area upstairs. And so he says, I think we probably better go up and, and check, you know, everything. And, um, you know, so I can let the boss know. Um, so we did. I went upstairs first. And there was a room off to my right at the top of the stairs. It looked like maybe at one time someone in a wheelchair, perhaps, or a child, because the door was split and you could open the top half, but the lock to the door was down on the bottom next to the floor where someone couldn't reach it. So I thought, you know, maybe like a, a grandma's room or something like that. I go in that room and I kid you not, this thing, this thing about eight feet tall, dark, almost transparent, but it definitely had a form. I could see the eyes were soulless but very bright very kind of a reddish flame color comes from it would be the uh northwest wall corner comes towards me there's no words between us but telepathically growls get out now i mean there is no mistaking what it wanted it's within about 12 inches from me i back out of the room and I back into my husband coming up the stairs. He says, "We well, come out so quickly. I said, nah, nothing in there, see. He peeks in. We walk on over to the room to the left, which was a master bed and bath and loft and everything. That thing followed both of us into the room. We walked on up to the attic and loft area, saw the huge hole in the yard, and um, or in the roof, I mean, bricks in the yard were blowing it. And it had to have been raining awfully hard that night to put out that fire because it had obviously burned quite a while. 
and we walked back. And when we got to the top of the stairs, it melted back into the room it was, and we went on downstairs. And about a week later, he gets a call from a place he had put an application in where I currently live now, and he preferred to live there. So we left that job, and we, too, lived were there less than a month. And in the course of moving, he said, you know, that night that the lightning hit, and he said, I couldn't go back to sleep. And I said, yeah. He said, um, do you know what I saw? And I said, no. He had seen a ball of fire come down one of the walls and go clear across the house and out the living room wall, which we assumed to be the circuit that was hit by the lightning because after the storm, we only had lights in the house, in the kitchen, and our bed and bath. Every other light circuit did not work. Um, so we had reported it, but it hadn't been fixed by the time we left. And he said um, it was raining awfully hard to put that fire out. He said it burned enough to get that big of a hole. And um, he had gone to the pasture north of the house and had found three cows and two horses lying in the pasture dead. Bam, 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 like lightning had struck them or they had been standing together and were struck. They were under a tree, dead on the doornail. So he had reported it and they were hauling those off and stuff. And I had thought that was my last haunted house. And in the course of all of this, I, when writing the book, I did some research and I called over to the Historical Society and I said, hey, I have a question about a house. I didn't barely get the explanation out and the gentleman began to chuckle and he says, oh, Bell's Haunted House. And I said, okay, what do you know about this? Well, he put me in touch with the people who owned it and they were actually the people that moved in after we did and had moved right out. And I thought, oh, that's, nobody's going to stay in that house. But they moved out because they owned it. And they decided it was too antiquated, needed updating, so they completely remodeled it over the course of a few years. And they moved back in it. We lived in it in 1978. They moved back into it in 1983 and had been there ever since. I got her name. I talked to her. And I says, um, I hope you don't think I'm crazy, but, um, yeah, I want to tell you. So I told her my story. And she's listening. And I, she chuckled, too. And I says, okay. She says, yes. She says, this house has had the reputation of being haunted since the 1950s. And I said, what's the story? And she said, well, here's what I know. She said, it used to be a big ranch operation. And apparently, towards the last, there was a one of the ranch hands who had committed suicide, possibly over um, unrequited love or whatever. And he committed suicide down in the dungeon of the house, what they called the dungeon, which was the basement was like stone cave. Um, her uh, brother had his office in there for a long time. But um, she said, yeah, she said, um, I said, well, have you had anything? She said, oh, yeah. She says, my parents still live here. They have now passed. But at the time, she said, my parents still live here. It doesn't bother them. We're Christians. As long as it doesn't bother us, we're not going to, you know, do anything, get rid of it. It's not cost us any trouble. But she says, what we do experience, she said, um, her folks had the downstairs bed and bath because they were too frail to go upstairs. So she said her sister came one day to do work and she heard her name called. And she said, oh, what's my folks doing upstairs? So she went upstairs, nobody there. She went downstairs, her name was called again. Well, she had left 
um, the house soon out of high school because she said, it's just too creepy for me. There's enough going on that scared the sister. And so she would never go back alone. Never, ever. The uh, one I was talking to said, yes, she said, all the visitors. Now, I never did hear my name called, but I kept hearing a lot of weird talking, like someone was upstairs carrying on a private conversation. But when I'd get near the stairs, it would stop. Whenever I'd get into another part of the house, I'd hear it again. I mean, I must be going crazy and hearing voices. But this was went on, off and on for a month. And she said, yeah, she said, I've had my name called. She said, uh, the room that I saw the entity in was her bedroom growing up. And she says, the only thing I can say is it always felt creepy. She said, I never wanted to have the light out. I slept in there. I stayed in there. She said, it felt kind of cold, but I never wanted a light out in there. I always had to have a night light or hall light on. But um, her parents passed, and I guess the family has now, you know, changed hands with it. I'd like to take a drive and look at it, but I've not seen it since then. But that was not to be my last experience. And through this all, I would have dreams that would tell me um, something was up, something was coming. It might be symbolic as a black bull. It might be symbolic as a tornado. It might be something like that. But um, nothing I could really define. I just was kind of put on notice. I would be experiencing something before it happened. But it's sort of like, you've got to do this, but here's what you're going to experience. It's going to be a little weird thing. So I kind of like always had a maybe a, a, you know, kind of a heads up before I would encounter something. And I don't like to use the word psychic. I don't, that, that word doesn't set well as a Christian. I prefer to call it sensitive or intuitive. I think it's a gift. I believe some of us are endowed with that for whatever reason. And I think the fact that I grew up in the family I grew up in, it gave me both the Christian side and the non-Christian side. And it taught me a lot. I learned a lot from my mother, even though the atmosphere was unpleasant much of the time. And when I um, went back to move back to the area and found um, the uh, the clinic that I had doctored at during the birth of my children and stuff, I went to her doctor, and uh, he said, "I never knew that about your mom." And he, she was always sweet. My mother was beautiful woman, tall like I am, six foot tall, blonde hair, good figure. Uh, my my mom gave me a lot of good things, and but one of the things she gave me was a sensitivity to things that, you know, I'm a little wiser, I guess, for having grown up around her. But it prepared me because I had my dad on the other side praying for me, and my mom, you know, it wasn't necessarily an enticement so much after I became a Christian, but it was like a temptation. And she was always trying to pull me away. And if I said, well, if we were going to do something, I said, I can't. I've got a church deal. Well, why is church more important than your family? Well, that's not necessarily the point I was making, but that's how she took it. And I would always rather be in church than be home where there's Ouija boards and candles and pyramids and crystals around. You know, given a choice, I'm always going to choose choose God. But the dreams started coming more and more when I moved back to the area, more and more and more. And... Fast forward to August 2011, and I have this dream one night, and in this dream there is a a big city. I'm in what I know now to be New York. I'm on a street, and there are black, uh, like, government cars around, and 
there's a lot of smoke in the air, white smoke, black smoke, a lot of people running. There was glass broken, a lot of chaos. I thought, my goodness, what is this? And um, that was about all there was to the dream. I knew something terrible had happened. Well, two weeks later, 9-11 occurs, and one of the news pictures shows a downtown view, which shows exactly what I saw in the dream. I was in that spot. I was standing on that corner. I saw those buildings. I saw those people with the dirty faces, and I saw those exact government vehicles. And this was two weeks before it happened. I'm thinking, okay, they're coming back. I've had these dreams of ever since probably 14, 15 years old, things happening to family. Before they happen, I could warn them, I don't think you ought to be taking that trip. When people listen to me, it turned out okay. But a friend of mine didn't listen, and oftentimes in one dream, I had a dream she was killed in a car wreck. She was actually in the car wreck, in the place I dreamed. The circumstances were exactly the same, except because I got a little wiser, I began to pray after having these dreams, and she was not killed. She was badly injured, but she was not killed. And she said, we hit a tree, and she said, had it not, the direction that the car hit, had it not hit the way it did, she would have gone through the windshield and into the tree. And she says, thank you for your prayers. I believe that's what saved my life. And so she began to believe me a little bit better. And usually whatever I would dream would be within seven to 30 days after the dream that the event would occur. And I got so used to this all of my life that when I tell my family and friends, people began to listen in my circle. The kids would begin to listen And it's like, okay, maybe mom's right here. And everything turns out fine. If they didn't, well, I should have listened to you. It would never turn out as bad as the dream was because if they didn't listen, I would always begin to pray. And I don't care. They're going to do what they want to do, but, you know, protect them. And it would always be better than what the dream turned out. But you remember the Aurora shooting in Colorado at that theater? Yeah. Um, This happened on a Saturday night. I don't remember exactly the date. Thursday and Friday before the event, I have the same dream. And in the dream, I am somewhere and I'm going into a building that has kind of a turquoise bluish awning. And I don't know what the building is, but there's glass and a lot of people going in, some of it going on. As I start to get to the front door, I hear what sounds like firecrackers, noise. I thought, oh my gosh, they're shooting fireworks off. I turn around, and there's a young man with a gun. He is shooting people, and people are falling beside me and all around me. And I said, oh, my gosh. Well, he looks right at me, and he says, go. And I went. Well, I woke up. I said, my word. I said, I don't know what's fixing to happen, but I just kind of, you know, began to pray a little bit. Friday night, I have the same dream, except the difference is when it gets to where I'm face-to-face with the man, and he says, go. I turn, and my back's to him, and he fires. I feel the bullet. I feel the blood start to flow. I feel the pain. I hit the ground, and I said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Everything goes black, and I wake up. I'm drenched in sweat. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, something's fixing to happen. 
Saturday night this happens, and I'm, I'm shaking. I'm just literally shaking on the sofa, and I'm thinking, my daughter, what happened? I told her. She just shook her head. I mean, my kids couldn't do anything but shake their head. They they know me well enough. Mom, I'm sorry, she said. So she sat with me a little while, and, you know, I watched the news like everyone else, and I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, God, why, why, why me? Why do I do this? What is this? And it wasn't until Sunday or Monday, a couple of days later, when I saw a news report that they had a helicopter view of the scene that night, and I saw that blue awning. And then I everything fit together. And it started again. I started to shake, and I started to cry, and I thought, oh, my God, what is what is this? Why do I do this? And I still don't have an answer, Tony, but it happens on a regular basis. I'm starting to get the size of earthquakes when I dream of earthquake. I'm starting to get the uh, location of um, floods. Uh, this one hurricane that, that hit, this last one went through Puerto Rico and all that, the, the big one. Um, I was downtown here, my local, local, in the dream, driving downtown with my daughter, and the sky turns black, and uh, this swirling starts, and the sky gets angry and black. And I said, oh, gosh, we're headed for a storm. That was all I said. We turn the block, and as the storm hits, everything turns red. The, 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 the funnel itself turns red. The clouds turn red. The object it hits turn red. Well, I've learned that to be that there's going to be death involved when something turns red. And I'm thinking, oh, my word, what am I supposed to do? So all I do is pray. I mean, I don't know. There could have been more deaths that could have happened. But what what do you do, Tony, when you get that? You just pray. You just, why why this happens? I don't know. It's happened since the week I came to Christ, as I said, and they, they happen periodically. And I've just learned now to write them down. I have a, several journals. I write my dreams down. When they happen, I what I think would be a correlation in the natural world and the news, I'll write down with it. Um, all I can do is pray. I mean, all I guess one thing this does is keep me praying, you know, praying for yeah, what for goes sure. on, praying for what could go on, you know. Um, I don't know what else to do with it. And um, anyway, that's, that's the part of the dream aspect of it. And so, um, you know, you put this together with all of the experiences. There's Another haunted house up the street, um, house I was renting sold, and I had to stay with a friend for a while. And um, I tell about these in my book and these experiences and go into great detail. And I have come to realize that um, it's going to happen. It's going to be what it is. For whatever reason, God's granted that. I know how to tell the difference generally with the two sides that I grew up with. Um, it's not hard to spot good and evil. It can be deceptive sometimes. Evil can trick you, but I've kind of learned to check a motive. I've kind of learned to step back and watch. Um, there's a lot of things that go on. I just record that may not happen the way I dream, may not happen at all. Perhaps prayer stops them. Um, you know, they none of them lead me to believe they're just too much pizza. You know, they're, they're very clear very bright. The details are very vivid. It's not the first dream where I've actually been experiencing the event that's about to experience, uh, about to happen. So I just write them down. I just pray. That's all I can do. Tony, that's all I can do with them. Yeah. Now with the, with your experiences with these dreams, do you think that there's, you know, have you ever come across any reasoning why you're getting these dreams and how you're able, like, I think you said that you were able to predict 
not predict, but you were receiving uh, like the size of earthquakes or something like that, right? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, that happened, started happening about two years ago. There was an earthquake. I don't know if I can remember the country, but I had an earthquake. I was somewhere and I felt the ground shake and I said, oh my gosh, you know, earthquake bounced me around a little bit. There's some damage. There's some, some mess, but that was about all there was to it. And I called my daughter that morning. As we do, we check with each other every day. And um, I said, by the way, I had a dream last night of an earthquake. And she's quiet. And I says, it's over. And I told me it was in Europe. I know that. And I said, it's a 5.3. And it happened in August. I, can, I can't remember that, but I can't tell you the date of the year. And she's, I said, it's going to happen within seven days. Okay. Well, okay, Mom. And then we went on talking about what the call was about. That was all there was to it. I heard the news, the earthquake happened, but I didn't hear the the rating of it until I listened to CBN. The Christian Broadcast Network news channel had actually another report. They gave the seismic of it, and it was 5.3. And my daughter was here listening to it, and she turned, and she looked at me, and she gave me this longest stare. And she says, you're not kidding about this stuff. And she says, I've lived with you for... 25 years around you. Listen to this. And you're not kidding, are you? I just shrugged my shoulders. And so since that point, I've gotten locations or I've gotten more details about the natural event, like the storms or the earthquakes or something or the numbers. And that didn't happen before then. That's really interesting. I, I find that the fact that you're having these dreams and then these events are happening and things, uh, I, I just I find that very fascinating, especially like how you were able to see nine eleven before it happened. Uh, do you think mm-hmm. that there's? I don't know. I mean, when it comes to these dreams, do you think that at some point you're going to be able to start doing something about the event before it happens? Yeah, you know, Tony, that's a good question, and and one I've asked myself a lot. I tend to think. There are people who, like me, I'm a senior. I have a, a uh, I have fibromyalgia and CFS, so I'm retired from from work on disability, but I'm still fairly active enough. And but I don't get out and do what I did in the church during my younger years and raising the kids. I just don't have the stamina or the energy anymore. But I think that as we get older or things change in our life, we can become prayer warriors. And I think some of us are designed to be prayer warriors. And I tend to keep my prayer life, my devotion life pretty private. Um, I don't, um, I'm not really a part of a lot of prayer groups uh, in my life. I'm not necessarily a joiner. I will pray, you know, and someone asks me to pray, I'm on a prayer list, you know, prayer group list for something. I'll pray. But I tend to keep all that private because I tend to think maybe Those of us, and I'm sure, Tony, I'm not the only one who gets these. There had to have been others that had dreams of 9-11. There had to have been, because I believe in the Bible, God would generally warn all throughout the Bible what he was going to do before he did it, particularly in the form of judgment, particularly when it came to judgment. Um, He told Abraham, you know, to leave. He said, here's what I'm going to do. Here's the covenant I'm going to make with you. He's done it all through the Bible. And I tend to think, that if those of us who are sensitive to maybe atmospheric changes, um, as an asthmatic, I can tell you when a storm's coming before the weatherman knows it, just by the change in the air pressure. It can affect the breathing, can affect 
um, you know, the, the sinuses, the head, the stuff like that. And I think we are basically given this to pray because perhaps that one prayer that we might not have prayed could be the catalyst to prevent a further tragedy or to prevent it from being as bad as it could have been. Okay. You know, uh, I know this is kind of switching gears here back a little bit, but if I am I correct in, in tracking with you that your parents, your dad was a Christian and your mom was uh, a Wiccan? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. How was it in that household? Because that's some very that's a lot of clashing on a spiritual level. Uh, there is. Did your parents get a, get along at all, or was it just kind of like your dad didn't really cross your mom a whole lot? My uh, parents met uh, when my dad and his band were performing up in northern Kansas for a dance, and my mom was working at the children's home or a kind of like a children's agency there. And she and a couple of friends went one night. Didn't know my dad. So just you know, we've got some time. Let's just go hear the music. And um, he he was you know playing something or singing or whatever. And she walks in with the friends, and my dad takes one look at her, and his his words are. I couldn't even remember what I was supposed to sing next. And he was about, <laughs> I would say, 43. And so it, it threw him for a loop. And they started going out. And my mother had a son from a, a former marriage that when she was in the Navy. She was the Navy wave during World War II. She was stationed in Key West. And so was um, her husband at the time. And um, my mother had a physical issue and wasn't supposed to have been able to get pregnant, but she did. She got pregnant with my brother and, um, her, uh, his dad said, me or the, me or the baby, if you want to stay with me, abort the baby. And my mother fortunately did not agree with that. So his commanding officer and her commanding officer helped keep him busy while she got off the base and she was transferred to Mare Island, California. She served another two years and then she, she, um, got out, was honorably discharged. So she had my brother at the time, and my dad took to him like, yeah, no big deal. I mean, there was no official adoption, but, I mean, just a good family unit right there. But my mother, I guess you could say very controlling, very manipulative. You never crossed her. You could disagree with her to a point, but... um, she may not always be right, but she was never wrong. That's kind of how the atmosphere was. Um, it created a lot of fear. Um, I felt unconditional love for my dad. My dad and I were very, very close. My mother and I, um, I won't say I felt unloved, but I felt I was more of a duty with her. She let it be known that she did not want more children after my brother, so I was a complete surprise. and. I was cared for. Um, she was involved um, when it came to playing the music and I, everything fully supported all this stuff. No problems there. But when it came to, I, well, I'll, I'll tell you, here's a good answer to your question. In order to speak to my mother or to ask my mother a question, I had to write a note and let her consider it. Really? I couldn't just walk up and like I could, hey, Daddy, can I go, you know, the store today? I had to write my mother a note leave it on the table, and she would consider it. That's how that was. And I grew up with a lot of fear, not just the environment by default that being around that kind of stuff gives you. 
But I became afraid of my own shadow. I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of making a mistake. And I was an honor roll, straight A student. Schoolwork came easy. Doing things and succeeding came easy because everybody just kind of didn't want to come to the house, you know. Now, if my dad was there and we had our jam sessions before our performances, I mean, we had a house full. But if my dad was not there or he was otherwise occupied and not in the house, which he pretty much did, he retreated and wrote his stories on tape because he didn't want to be around mom, my friends wouldn't come over. So I grew up pretty much alone. And um, um, I guess it kind of made a bad attitude in me. I could cuss like a sailor. I'm not proud to admit that, but that's what I did. I was rebellious. I was very angry. I started killing small animals. Um I was like, because I couldn't express myself. It was like, I could talk to daddy about anything. And he didn't know about me killing the small animals for a while. But he finally caught me one day. I'd caught a bird inside an empty coffee can and I shook it till, it till it killed it. Because it made me feel good to have control over something. Because I didn't have any other control. And my dad said, what's going on here? And he talked to me, he said, has this happened before? And I said, yes. And I said, yes, sir, it has. And so basically all he did is, we're not going to tell your mom. He says, we're going to pray about this. And it stopped. It just all of a sudden stopped one day. I stopped killing one day. That's all there was to it. But it was some time before I came to Christ. And I still had the anger issues. Although the swearing stopped and the rebellious behavior stopped, I still had anger issues. And I felt like I had to control. So when I got married, I controlled. Um, I became agoraphobic. I didn't leave my house for it would have been a culmination 27 years. I got to where I could go only within the city limits. There was so much I missed. Um, I mean, the kids had a lesson. Either my husband had to go with me to take them or they had to provide a ride because I wasn't going to take them if it was out of the city limits. Um, I became very performance-oriented. The better I did, the more my mother bragged about me, appreciated me, complimented me, and flat-out noticed me. If I made a mistake, there wasn't any, okay, what can you learn from this? Like you should do as parents. It was shame on you. You ought to know better. Stop crying. Smile. I was never allowed to cry around her. I was, um, she, she seldom ever smiled, but yet I was always told I had to smile. Um, um, I had to bury feelings. Um, if I got into trouble, which fortunately for my sake was very rare and I got spanked, I cried and You know, Daddy would say, this hurts me more than you, which I understood becoming a parent later. But um, uh, my mom gave me a couple sniffles, and she'd come in and say, okay, you can stop now. It's really not that bad. You should know better. Shame on you. So I grew up, Tony. I got rid of the shame through a church service only three years ago, and I'm 59. I grew up with such shame over my entire life. I didn't feel like I could measure up not even to God, and that although I knew God loved me, I felt like love was based on how well I did. So I got into performance-oriented Christianity. Um, My father passed um, early, so I jumped into taking care of my mom. She was ailing at the time, and that was okay. As long as I was doing for her, we got along fine. But I was working at my local police department, and I was, I mean, I practically lived down there. That's just the way it is. And so when I couldn't take her somewhere, it was my fault, of course, because I couldn't get somewhere to take her. I couldn't get off. Well, Mom, this is my job. I was in school full time. I was a single parent by this time. 
and I was still performance oriented. And after a while in 2002 or one, I think it was, I cracked. I came apart at the seams. I fell apart and I lost two complete years. I cannot tell you what happened two years of my life. I, I completely, I split into seven different people and that was the end of that. It took about oh, seven to eight years to fully heal. And through prayer and the church I'm attending now, it was awesome. The Lord began to work. He healed all of that. I don't feel the anger. But um, there was still my mom to deal with. And um, so she passes away, I believe, October 27th, 2009, I believe. Her birthday is October 3rd, so yeah, October 27th. And I was filled with such anger, such stress, such turmoil that... Probably for 10 years prior to this, I'd not slept well. I'd sleep two, three hours, get up, be up three, four days, crash, you know. But I'd, I would perform, graduated college twice, um, took out a certificate, got a degree, enrolled in undergraduate. Um, I had to stop because of a kidney issue, but I was headed towards a bachelor's at the time. Um, I did it. I did. I performed really well, but I was coming apart at the seams. And there was still the anger issue. And I'm doing dishes one night, and my mother's in the hospital, and um, she'd had a stroke. And the Lord said, we need to deal with something. And I thought over all my life, it's like my life flashed before me, and I thought, well, okay, the only way I'm going to get rid of this is I'm going to have to forgive her. So at the sink, I said, Mom, I forgive you. I know there were issues that you caused your problem. She might, she might grandmother her mother never got along she said either you let me enroll in the navy at 17 or i'm going to join the circus so that's how that went so i never knew my maternal grandmother very much i never knew my paternal grandparents because both of them were gone before my father turned 16 so i kind of grew up not knowing how to be you know a grandparent and a, and a granddaughter and this kind of stuff and i thought you know i know there are issues I, I forgive you i release you mom it's okay well i had this tremendous change of attitude occur at that moment. There was a revenge, anger uh, turned into compassion. It's like, wow, I kind of really feel sorry for my mom. So um, I would say about three weeks later, she passes. And as I said, I hadn't been sleeping. And I go to bed and I drop right off. Bam. I mean, you would thought I died. I dropped right off. And I don't know how long I was in bed, probably a few hours. And I felt my spirit being pulled out of my body and being pulled towards, she was at the veterans home in Winfield, Kansas at the time. And I felt my spirit being pulled just really swiftly towards wherever we were going. But you know, there was no fear, nothing. And in like about three seconds, I traveled 10 miles to the building she was at, there was, I, w I, w I would call it an angel. There was a presence with me, very calming. No words were ever spoken the entire event. I go up there. I'm, I go through the back brick wall. I and this, this angel go through the wall. And we stand to the north of her bed. She's in bed. She's flat on her back. She's got two aides by her. And there's another being at the foot of her bed. I'm assuming that now to be perhaps the angel transporting her to wherever. And I'll say why I say that in a moment. But I'm watching her. They're kind of dabbing her lips with a 
a towel or a straw. I could tell you until last year, I could tell you what color their suits were, what design was on their scrubs, everything about it. It was tunnel vision. I, where I was standing, I could see her in the bed very clearly. I could see everything kind of foggy. I knew where the restroom was. I knew where the other side of the room and her dresser and stuff were, but I didn't see them clearly. No words were ever spoken, but I knew, I sensed that the being that was at the foot of her bed knew that I was there. I could see it. I knew I was there, although it never turned and looked at me. I don't believe the age, or, but I think my mother knew I was there. She never turned. Of course, she was on her last breath, and the aides never turned. Nurses never turned and looked at me. I would say, not gauging time, I might have been there 10 or 15 minutes. I looked at her, and I just stood there, and I just watched and observed what was going on. Never a word was spoken. And I said, goodbye, Mom, and immediately sucked back through the wall, split second, back in my bed, and I wake up having had the most best night's sleep I had in 10 years. And I wake up, and the first words out of my mouth was, how cool was that? I knew it was not a dream, Tony. I knew I had left. I knew I had gone, and my mother passed 15 minutes later. And I knew I had been there, and I knew it's goodbye. And people have asked me, why do you think that happened? And, and this is a scary thought. I'm hoping my mother made her peace because the year before she died, she started reading her Bible. She had a Bible by her bedside probably, I would say, all of that last year. And I caught her reading it. She'd ask me questions once in a while, you know, when I'd go, do, go up and visit her and stuff, just generic Bible questions and stuff. I would explain it best I could. So I have to believe in my heart she didn't make her peace. I want to believe in my heart she made her peace. But if she didn't, perhaps I went to see her that night because that would have been the last time I would ever see my mother. If she didn't make her peace, maybe that's what God granted me to say goodbye because I had forgiven her just a few weeks before. Um, we were close in a way. I mean, we had good moments. My mother gave me a lot in life that is awesome. She taught me well. She taught me breeding, um, etiquette. Um, she taught me, um, you know, um, she was a sharp dresser. Um, she taught me that. There's a lot of things she did good. But the, I guess it was all tempered with the atmosphere that I lived around. And it taught me a lot spiritually, but it also taught me there is a heaven, there is a hell, and you do make your own choice. And I don't want to think that's why I went, but there was never any ounce of fear. In fact, it was sort of like one of those things, oh, okay, we're going to go see my mom tonight, like one of those things that happened every day. It was a true out-of-body. I know what happened. I've written it down. I can tell you the story. Now I can't tell you what the print was on the scraps, but up until last year I could. It's, the colors are starting to fade, but the event has never faded. But I felt the most tremendous, indescribable peace when I woke up that morning, like, it's closed, it's done, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I'm not a
This is Wes with Sasquatch Chronicles, and you're listening to The Confessionals with Tony Merkel. I wanted to talk to you about the earlier in your story here, you said about how you kind of looked into dabbling with witchcraft and mm-hmm. the you kind of, I guess you got books that you were going to start learning mm-hmm. how to do this stuff. Uh, when, yeah. it, when it came to like the whole idea of casting spells, is this something that you had to read to learn how to do, or is this something that you picked up from your mom, or was it a mixture of both? I would say a mixture of both. Um, I am not absolutely certain that in my mother's Wiccan practices, she didn't have some knowledge of this, because just some weird stuff. Man, weird, weird stuff. But... I began to read up on it because I wanted to say, okay, mom, um, here's what I read here. What do you know? Can you help me with this? And I, my whole idea was to actually start casting spells on people that hurt me, that offended me, that uh, gave me trouble because it's like being bullied. Uh, My first name is Wilma. And I'm named after my dad's best friend's sister, who was my godmother. And up until... I was in middle uh, middle school, probably, maybe late elementary, sixth grade or so. I didn't mind it, but I started getting picked on. You know, Flintstone's this, or Wilma, that's an odd name. Well, whatever. It grew from there. I shot up above boys. I'm I'm six feet tall. I have family that's seven four. I had an uncle that was seven nine. So I shot up above everybody. I was a farm girl. I had I had a very serious speech impediment when I was younger. Um, I had to take special classes. Um, I was a geek. I wore glasses, but I was smarter than everybody. I was teacher's pet because my work was done. I was making straight A's, so I was constantly bullied. And I thought, you know, I'm the first stop to this nonsense. Rather than getting unhappy as kids are doing now and, and killing themselves and retreating and stuff, I got angry. And I said, okay, I'm going to fix you. And I didn't want to kill them, but I wanted to make their life a living hell. And I wanted to learn how to do this. And so there was this battle of me. I would even try to dress in witch costumes and stuff. And there was this battle before I came to Christ that there was this pull, particularly after I asked my dad about the age of accountability. At that instant, I believe I knew what I was doing. I may not have understood all of it, but I was leaning one way one minute. And then I don't want to hurt daddy. And, you know, I'd go to his side, go to church, say my Bible verses you know, and do all the good stuff there, and then come home and read a a book about casting spells. Um, I did never read a book on Satanism. Thankfully, the Lord stopped that before that happened. But I just began to to give people the evil eye. I began to frighten people, even at 13, 14 years old. I'm thinking, my word, you know. But um, I would say the pull was so strong that had not... God got a hold of me when he did, I probably would have gone into full-fledged witchcraft, and I may not be here today. Yeah, I agree. Uh, when you were having this outer-body experience, and you were seeing your mother, uh, that entity that was in the room that you said that it never acknowledged you, like turning towards you, but you knew it knew you were there— uh, what do you think? It's the that, of my mother's bed. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that was? Uh, do you do you think that was like a an escorting angel, or do you think yes. that was okay? So you, so that was like a. I had it was dressed in white. It was white, but had dark hair. The back was to me. I believe it was simply waiting for her death. It was. I believed when I was there 
this was not a nurse, but an escorting angel. And the one that was escorting me up there, um, just peace, very calm. It was very tall. Um, it towered over me, but very, it was like, it was all business. I, I was never afraid. It was like, okay, I, we got to do this and get back. You know, it's sort of like all business. It had one purpose. That was to do whatever it was to do and to take me and bring me safely back. And never, never, never any fear, never any, any, um, and see, remember, Tony, at the time that this out of body happened, I had not yet been delivered from my agoraphobia. I was still afraid to leave my house. I did go to my church a few blocks away. So realize that being pulled out of my body and taken and then brought back, I would have probably fought tooth and nail, but it was so quick. And so precise and so filled with purpose, it was like there was no fear. And so for whatever reason, and as I mentioned, what I think a couple could be, um, maybe it was to show me how important forgiveness is because there was closure. There was definitely closure. And um, the angel escorting me, like I said, never said a word, uh, was my constant companion, but it always stood just behind me. It let me have that time with my mom. I just stood there. I thought about everything. I looked at her and says, bye, mom. And as soon as I said that, I came back to my bed. And that's 10 miles from my home of 12. You count the travel. 12 miles from my home to where she was. And it didn't take a split second to go up there and back. And um, when I told this story to several of my friends, they're, oh, yeah, that it, yeah, I believe it. Because I asked, do you believe me? Oh, Absolutely. Well, Paul had one. What do you think is one? I've heard of it. I had never dabbled in astral projection. I'd heard of it, and I thought, you know, that's just a little bit too scary. I don't want to get somewhere and can't get back. So I just think I'm going to leave that alone. So that was never an aspect I got into. All I want to do is make bullies pay, make people who hurt me, make situations who didn't go my way turn out my way. That was what I went into it with. But when I became came to Christ, okay, yeah, that's probably not the right thing to do. So I abandoned all of that. And so any experiences I had after coming to Christ at about mid-13, early 14 age there, I'm like, um, okay, there's a purpose, even though I had to hide it until the book came out. And see, that's another thing. As, As a Christian author, I struggled, I prayed, I cried, I struggled. I had turmoil inside about this book because it deals a lot with this, the stories my parents had written. And I had initially put it together only for the family. That's how it came about. I thought, okay, well, the kids need to read these stories. They'd never read the stories or heard the stories on tape. I got all of the family films and all of my dad's tapes at his death. So I still have his voice on the reel to reel. And I, I write these stories. It took years to write because I had to stop the tape and run it forward and edit, you know, and do everything, make it flow. And so it took 10 years to write it. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to give this to my kids. But when some friends read it, because they were interested, they said, you know what? You need to go public with this. This is a popular topic. I said, yeah, but this, you know, the same legalistic stuff. I'm a Christian. You're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to talk about this. I'm really just doing this for family because I'm probably, you know, I'm going to be ostracized by my Christian group. But you know what? Just the opposite has happened, Tony. Since this came out, I present faith all the way through the book, but I also tell you what happened. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to change it. I'm going to tell you what happened. I've experienced both angelic beings and demonic beings. 
I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm going to tell you what I think I learned from it, if I've learned something yet. Sometimes it takes a while. But they're outlined in the book, and I think, okay, here they are, folks. You draw your own conclusions. But it has been so well-received, particularly among some people that I really didn't think was into this stuff. They're like, man, i got to tell you about an experience I had. And it's open dialogue. They said, well, hey, i got to tell you something. I want your opinion. What do you think this was? And I'm able to tell them. So who knows? Who knows? You know, the turmoil I went through maybe was worth it because I, it felt right when it did come out. I didn't put it out for two years after it was finished because I still wasn't sure I was supposed to. And finally, the piece came, do this. Just trust me, just do this. And I represent Christ through it. I want people to understand, as I told you the pre-interview, the spiritual world was here long before mankind. It is going to be here long after mankind. So we can't ignore that it's here. And there are pastors, there are believers who, okay, I'm not touching this. Ooh, you know, I even have some very close Christian friends that are practically scared when I talk about it. Because they believe it's wrong. I believe it's wrong to go seeking about it. I don't believe it's wrong to study it and investigate it. I only heard about, uh, I've known Sasquatch most of my life. I'm no big, I think I encountered one down in the woods at the farm. I grew up at the farm in the woods all my life. I mean, I'm not afraid to be there, but I kind of think I come across one. Nothing really happened and I headed back to the house and that was the end of that. But I'm pretty sure that's what was there that day. But Dogman, I've only heard about it six months ago, but I've been studying, I've been researching. I'm like, you know what? And I compared it to the Bible. I compared it to the stories. I've listened to back every story on YouTube that I think is legit about this, this subject. And I've moved away from the paranormal because, you know, we're pretty well settled in that. And I've started moving into the cryptid field. And I'm beginning to realize some things that the Bible talks about that people have not maybe noticed or glossed over or skipped over. And I thought, you know what? There's some things pointing to the return of Christ here. It's as plain as the nose on your face. No, we don't know when, but we know it's going to happen. Believers know this. And Jesus said there are some very specific things that if you compare what he said, the book of Enoch and the book of Jasher are both mentioned in the Bible. And that's what a lot of Christians don't realize. But I don't necessarily think they should have been included. I agree with that, with the exception there's some of Enoch that I think would help a lot if it had been. But the Bible is God's book. He put in there what he wanted in there. And I think the rest of it is for us to search out and to discover. And I will hold to the Bible over any other book. But I'm using Josephus. I'm using Tacticus. I'm using some of the Roman historians and scribes. In describe, when the fall of Jerusalem uh, occurred in 70 A.D., did you know there were signs in the heavens? There was what we might call UFOs, but there were chariot, horsemen, soldiers in battle in the sky. Josephus reports it. Tacticus reports it. Enoch reports it. Just before Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D., Jesus promised that, that it was going to happen. And there are so many things in these historians that when you read it in line with the scripture in about the same time it's written, and you listen to these encounters people are having, 
And like they're they're terrified, they're what's going on here, what is this? And you look at the signs that Jesus talked about and you read Ezekiel and you read Daniel and you read Jeremiah and Isaiah and a lot of these that fit in together with end time prophecy and there's this very definite connection and that's what I my goal is. Wake up, church. I'm not telling you to embrace the subject, I'm telling you to not avoid it. Tell your people what's going on. Use it in the sermon. Use it. You may not understand it. You may not know what it is. That's fine. I don't either. But let it let it get these people ready. You, you don't want to scare them into coming to Christ, but if that's what it takes, then don't be afraid to approach this subject. Okay, if you've got some occurrences in your house going on, we probably need to address this spiritually. Maybe I don't believe it, but if you believe it, let's talk, let's pray. You tell me what's going on. I'll see what I can do. And I think the church is, is sidestepping this way too much because the number of, of my believer friends that have come to me and talked to me about things, that I, can't, I can't tell my pastor. I can't tell the church council. I can't tell my best friends. They're going to laugh me out of the park. But me coming forward because I grew up in that kind of an environment, because I've dealt with it, because I've encountered it, because I know what I'm facing, because I, I oh, what do you call it, I checked off the signs, I've compared the signs, I've researched it. If it sounds like it doesn't fit, I toss it out, set it aside till later. If I think it's shady, if I think it's just weird, someone wanting attention, I discount it. And I'll go back to what's real. I probably spend more time researching than I do sleeping because I don't want to put out anything in print that I don't believe 100% with my gut is the truth. And I believe 100% that these cryptid sightings, these increased UFOs, my aunt encountered one. Well, I told this to some people I'm like, well, okay. And then I tell it to others, you know, so did so-and-so. Man, I'm glad I, at least I can tell somebody. I've never told anybody. I'm too scared to tell anybody. My pastor would disavow me, you know, and there, there, there's a reason this is pointing. Jesus' return has to do with everything that's piling up, even though we may not know when, we may not know how long. He promised signs in the heaven. He promised that which was secret, secret would be brought to light. Look at the agreement of Pentagon. Yeah, we've actually done this for years. Jesus promised that things that were secret would eventually be brought to light. There are some things we didn't know Dogman existed. I didn't for until six months ago. That was a secret to me, and yet it's been revealed. Thousands of people are seeing these things. It's not mass hysteria. Okay, you've got to admit something's going on. But I don't want to focus on the event. I want to focus on, on, on the, the why. Why? Because it's supposed to happen. It's gearing up to something. It's gearing up to something you need to pay attention to. And that's what I hope to get out with these. Well, I would like to hear you tell us the title of your book one more time before we get out of here and uh, a brief you know, synopsis of what it is, what's inside of it. Okay. Um, it's Stories for Stormy Nights, Is It Is or Is It Ain't series, volume one. You can find it on Amazon. Just type in Elaine Lewis. Stories for Stormy Nights, and it here's the back, what the back cover says. Looking for stories to send shivers down your spine? You'll find some in this collection about spooks of the supernatural. Read about the ghostly telegraph messenger that saved a passenger train from disaster, the ghost town that wasn't there, 
mysterious footsteps, and the spirit that waited 40 years to finish the job. You'll sleep with one eye open after reading about these marvels of the mysterious. Invite a friend over. You won't want to read them alone. And I need to stress that it's a nonfiction. There are a couple of stories that are fiction in the event, but the event that led to the story is a real event. There is a story written around it. And uh, my father never made up a story entirely in his own mind, just off the cuff. Something happened within one of his stories, each of his stories, that prompted him to formulate a story around the event. So the fun is in trying to seek out what that event might have been. But uh, my my experiences are in Chapter 5. There's a couple in, I think, first chapter and third chapter. There's a couple. But um, the really hardcore uh, demon and angel encounters are in Chapter 5. And um, they're 100% real. There were other witnesses to it. And um, if you're interested in this and this is your cup of tea, it's not everyone's book. You know, I've got some, well, congratulations, but that's not something I want to read. I'm okay with that. But if this is what you like and you want to learn more and you want to see the faith aspect in this, that's what's missing in a lot of these, is the faith aspect. There's a lot of nonfiction um, ghost stories out there, people telling their experiences, the, the cryptids they encounter. But there's not too much in there about faith, and that's why I like your program, a couple of others that, that I've been researching. You bring the faith aspect into this because this is so needed now because the great deception is based on if Satan can get people's eyes off of God and onto him and onto the signs and onto the, the stuff, they've taken their eyes off God. He's one. We need to keep God in this equation, particularly now more than ever. And the church needs to wake up. Pastors need to wake up. The Christian counselors need to wake up. When, when you've got a client that comes to you and can't sleep and having nightmares because they saw something that isn't supposed to exist, you need to listen to them. You need to support them. You need to say, okay, maybe we need to go somewhere with this. Tell me again, what are you feeling? What is your belief? And don't discount it as a dream, as a hallucination. Don't discount it, even if it happened 30 years ago. If they can't sleep and they're plagued by nightmares and they're plagued by PTSD over these because they can't tell anybody, give them someone to tell. Bring bring your faith into this. Let's pray about this. You treat them, but let's pray with them. Let's compare it in the Bible. What do you think this is to you? If you know, if you know they're a Christian, how does this make you feel being a believer and seeing this? You know? Thousands and thousands of people cannot be hallucinating. There's something out there. I don't know what, which I, we can talk about in the next uh, next broadcast, but it's like, don't run from it. Help your people. Help us believers band together because it's part of the great deception and we need to keep God in the equation. We don't need to separate God and spirituality. We don't need to separate God and the paranormal. They actually fit. God is a spirit, so everything he does is a spirit, is eternal. So that means there's a dimension there, and we're a dimension. There is no way it's impossible for the two dimensions not to occasionally mix. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, when I was uh, I was at a conference 
later last year and uh somebody had asked me they had heard my show and they asked me you know as a christian how do you i forget how they phrased it but it was something like how do you justify doing what you do with your show and i just told him i said to me when you say paranormal i i say supernatural you know like it, it's mm-hmm. exactly it's how i view view the bible i mean i view the bible as something that uh, is a very supernatural book. There's a lot of crazy things that happen in it. There's a lot of crazy things mm-hmm. that it says is going to happen that hasn't happened yet. And, uh, you know, so I think it's all about perspective. And I, Elaine, I really appreciate you coming on tonight and just sharing with us, you know, your experiences and things like that. And I'm, I am really excited to have, to have you on for a patron episode and we can dive in more to, you know, things of your thinking and your philosophies and things like that behind like cryptids and stuff like that. I'm really excited about doing that. I'd I'd be glad to. Yes, that's great. Sounds great, Tony. Thank you. All right. Well, you have a good night. Thank you. Well, that's the show, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, there are three things you can do to help support the show. And Jack, what are those three things? You can leave us a blazing five-star review at iTunes. You can also become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the confessionals. And if nothing else, you can help support us on social media by sharing this. This what? This podcast. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you can share the show around on social media. That helps me out a ton. And uh, everybody who listened to the show today and heard a lot of Jack on here, Jack's actually the producer for the live shows for the, the for the patrons. So if you want to hear more of Jack and his lovely 22-year-old voice. Hello. His single 22-year-old voice. Well, let's not go that far. Well, you are single. And uh, <laughs> so... If you want to hear more of Jack, become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the confessionals. I love you guys. Take care. And remember, the truth will set you free. But first, it will piss you off. Bye. If I was a tall boy, I'd play basketball.
Well, that's the show, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, there are three things you can do to help support the show. Jack, what are those three things? Well, you can give us a five-star rating and review at iTunes, or you can come and visit us at patreon.com forward slash the confessionals and become a patron. Uh, dang it. It's not, oh, as, e- it's not as easy as you think, huh? Oh, it's say. not as easy as you think. You think, oh, recording's so easy and uh, Tony just sucks at it. No, it's actually hard. You got to get it right. I was trying to think of the best way to say it. Okay, right. Well, uh, yeah, take two. <laughs>